these concepts are ignored by technical scope because they're out of scope, but it's still reality. This is still what we normally interface with. That was Sheldon Deere. And on this podcast, there is nothing out of scope. This was an incredible conversation that spanned over almost four hours. Don't worry, we've done some editing and trimmed it down to leave in only the best. I really enjoyed this conversation with Sheldon because he brings in a wealth of experience expanding way beyond the near ecosystem. He is a contrarian that when he sees something, he has to say something. This makes for a fascinating ride that keeps weaving in and out between the deeply technical, going all the way back to the history of Bitcoin, Ethereum, ICOs, Polkadot Cosmos, and everything in between, all the way to the deeply human behavioral design. What are some of the incentives and the real-world challenges shaping Web3? I personally learned a ton of new technical concepts and came up with a lot of interesting ideas and challenge some of my personal beliefs. I hope that you get some of that as well. Without further ado, let's enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Sir Sheldon. Hello friends, welcome back to another episode of the Wild User Interviews podcast with me, AVB. Today, we have with us Sheldon Deer. Sheldon is a technologist, humanist, thinker, and self-proclaimed cheeseball. He is a former Fortune 500 IT security network engineer, and he serves many roles, including advisor at Octopus Network and technical product manager at Ample Stream. Welcome, Sheldon. Thank you so much for having me, ABB. It's a pleasure to come on the podcast. It is a pleasure to have you, especially because you are now in Bali, which means that we're basically in the same time zone. Yeah, it's my first time in Asia and I'm loving it so far. It happens to be yuppie today. It's a day of silence. So interesting day for a podcast because I can hear exactly how quiet it is outside. So what does a day of silence entail? So Nyepi is a Hindu holiday, but it's so impactful in Bali that it's like a national holiday. When I went downstairs to, to go get some water from the fridge at this hotel, the attendant, the person at the front desk came to me and was like, hey, it's a day of silence, right? Don't go uh, try to rent a scooter right now. And I said, yeah, I know I'm just here getting some water. I have work to, don't worry. But yeah, like I, I'm at this moderately busy intersection and the, normally from my room, I hear bikes all the time. I hear the engines. I hear people honking at each other to make sure that they know that they're coming around the corner and stuff. And it is almost pin drop silent today. It's really quite impressive how it went from so busy and bustling to like pin drop silent today. If it is anything like Mexico City, oh my God, I struggled so much to record podcasts there because I didn't realize while I was staying at the hotel, but listening to the recordings, I basically captured hours of traffic in Mexico City. So this may actually be the best day possible to record. Sheldon, I am very yeah. excited to talk to you for several reasons. The first one is I saw you on stage at New Denver and several things popped into my mind. This guy is very smart, he is contrarian, and he doesn't give a shit. He speaks his mind, he asks the tough questions, he is here to build and to deliver. So I thought, this is a perfect guest. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I definitely have more to do that is, we'll say contrarian. Okay, sure, contrarian's a good word for it. 
Now, if we had to start trying to unpack who Sheldon is, maybe why don't you start by telling us how you got into the wonderful world of crypto? Sure. It's a testable, affirmable story because people have heard me tell it before. But in late 2008, I was still, was already pretty like politically aware. And it just so happened that the Bitcoin white paper was announced on local news in Miami, where I'm from. And I thought it was interesting. And months later, when it came out, it was on the local news again. If you can believe it, local news ran this story. And, uh, and I went and read it and I thought it was very interesting. And I said, wow, this is great. There's no way this is going to be allowed to exist. And I put it down. And then years later, oh, hey, Sheldon, can you help us uh, buy some drugs on the Silk Road? Blah, blah, blah. And I said, guys, I'm not willing to put my credit card up for this. I don't trust this payment processor. I'm sorry. If you want to get your cards, then here we go. No problem. And some of those friends bought some stuff. But I didn't really have my unification with Bitcoin or my big moment until late 2012, early 2013, when I started working on this malicious engagement. 2008, 2012, what happened in that gap? I was a music student. I was in college for music, music composition specifically. And that was interesting and fun and good, but it wasn't a career path that was really right for me. 2012, I pivoted to network engineering. I was working in a call center doing IT support. And I had a, a client, I was specialist level two, and I had a client that was hacked. It was a Taco Bell franchise in the Midwest. Someone had walked into one of their stores and plugged in a little USB into one of the point of sale PCs, because at this time, especially they're not iPads, they're not touchscreen weird things. It's just a little HP desktop, right? So someone went and plugged a little USB into one of these machines. And that program wormed its way through that entire franchise, infecting, I think, eight computers with malicious Bitcoin mining software. And I thought that was incredibly interesting. And I had a lot of time to experiment and learn with it because as the managed security services provider for that Taco Bell franchise, I was responsible for the network that those computers were connected to, but I was not allowed to log on to those computers themselves. So I got a very indirect perspective on what Bitcoin mining looks like. And I started pulling the thread back from there. In doing that, I worked with Cato Networks. I worked with the company I was working at the time, Megapath, now called GTT. And we were trying to make something make sense because the client, Yum Corporation, they're not willing to change their entire software suite because one little group of stores had a problem that could carry over to other stores. That was part of the argument. And in order to make that argument effectively, what we had to do is present data. One of the ways we did this is by using a tool called Thousand Eyes. Eyes is an enterprise tool. So I think there's a free version you can see online, but not really used to its fullest ability. Thousand Eyes monitors what's called Border Gateway Protocol or BGP. Um, that's the sort of big chunky routing protocol that helps different ISPs share information about what IP blocks they're routing. I won't get into the network engineering 101 of that, but that's really what you need to know is that through this tool that was looking at these sort of macro flows in the internet, I saw not just that Bitcoin was coming out of this Taco Bell through our network, which we were mitigating. I saw that Bitcoin was poking through the Great Firewall, specifically China. I saw that there were Chinese citizens or people inside mainland China running Bitcoin, at least inside Chinese ISPs. And I thought this was incredibly interesting because in the West, these kinds of experiments, they're tolerated, they're slept off. Even at that time, 2012, 2013, the Great Firewall was still pretty significant. China really didn't want networks from outside of the country to, to have easy access in. So I saw these guys using a really old tunnel technology called windsocks. 
And the fact that they were willing to use windsocks in order to run Bitcoin made me think, wow, it's possible someone's risking their life inside China to run this network. I got to take this a little bit more seriously. This is interesting stuff. And I just went down a rabbit hole from there. I started mining a little bit at home. I did a bunch of different little mini chains with my friends where we would just pop up on our laptops and leave them plugged in and cooking and see how many blocks we could get through while making interesting changes or what happens before the network just totally breaks off into individual dev nets on each of our computers because it was crude code. We weren't forking Bitcoin, we were forking some other things. But that was my initial journey was walking up to it, experimenting with it. And then there was this heartbreak that really got my addiction going. And that is that when I was mining Bitcoin, I mined about 28. And that's not a particularly small number, but it was to my ex-girlfriend who looked at it and said, I could be mining this cute dog coin. I would much rather have dog coin. So let's just delete the private keys for the Bitcoin. It's not worth anything anyway. And, and yeah, that 28 Bitcoin will never be seen again. Had much greater losses to that ex-girlfriend who lied to me, who lied to the police about me. It caused me to spend a few thousand dollars in the Texas legal system for a couple of years. But that was the beginning of my addiction is not just like feeling like, like I was so close and having it ripped from me, but getting to actually touch the network, be involved, start playing with it. It wasn't trading that was my interest at all. I'm literally in it for the tech. That's my kind of starter story. To fast forward a little bit between then and now I had stints, let's say 2013, 2016 was mostly just research. I didn't really interact a lot on forums. I just had my kind of circle of friends and we would say, oh, hey, I saw this. Did you see this? And yeah, by the time 2016 came around, people were begging me to come into Facebook groups and, and try to make some of those products make sense that were being offered as blockchain products. Yeah, I have my experience after that, but that is the threshold for me because before 2016, you'll see very few comments from me online about Bitcoin in general, because I thought it was anti-government. I thought it was the kind of thing that could prevent me from getting hired as a security engineer, which turns out to be true. And uh, yeah, that's that. I think that's a bow I'll leave it off at is the, uh, the ICO period. That's a different phase. Yeah, we'll definitely take it one chunk at a time. That is a wild story. I have to say, you're definitely living up to the standards of the name of the podcast. There's so much in there. But first, let's start by acknowledging Florida and independent media. Covering the Bitcoin white paper twice back in the day, honestly, it would have been life changing. For most people who did not date a crazy girlfriend. <laughs> and maybe this is why most of crypto are single and virgins, but we diverge. I absolutely love that from the very, very beginning, you got to experiment with the actual code and the hardware. And I even really like that notion of having to reverse engineer your way. There has not been a shortage of people on the podcast who buy things in the darknet during the early days, but you're definitely the first one that has been subject to an exploit or an attack. And it's a very sophisticated one because when you said that they put in a USB stick, I thought it was going to be ransomware involved or something, but deploying the mining software, it's actually, it's a smooth criminal operation. I'm curious, do you know how many Bitcoins you were able to mine through the exploit? From the wallets I tracked, it was only six. Okay. Yeah. I so they were only getting one core on each of these dual core machines, right? So it's very small resources. Interesting. 
Amazing. I'm sure that all of that early experimentation with Bitcoin has informed a lot of the things that you've done since. I don't know if you have any other remarks before we jump into the ICO era. I know that things are probably going to keep getting increasingly wild. You ready? Yeah, that's a good early days section. Yeah, let's talk about the middle period, if you will. Or actually, just before we jump into the middle period, maybe we can have like parallel timelines. This is going to be crazy, but I actually mm. discovered Bitcoin as well in 2012, 2013. And I got really into it thinking about ways to get money in and out of Venezuela. So it would have been similar in some ways, perhaps, to China in the sense that we had currency controls. And Bitcoin was technically not considered a currency. So I remember walking around the park in 2013 when I went back to visit and telling my mom about this. And she's like, you're batshit crazy. This makes no sense at all. And then I remember coming back to Australia and I bought some Bitcoin in 2013. It was the dodgiest experience. You had to deposit cash in like a bank of Queensland and then wait several days. and. I did experiment a little bit in the dark net, no further comments, but I never really got too deep into the technology side. As a non-tech person, for me, the vision was super simple. Limited supply cannot be stopped. Alternative to the financial system. I bought into it. Yeah, I was on pause while I was in uni. And then I graduated just as Ethereum was gaining momentum in 2016 and I lived that ICO era, but I'd like to hear from you first how Ethereum enters the scene and those early days, which were insane. So before I talk about Ethereum in tandem, let me talk about my career in tandem a little, because when I skip up to the ICO period, I didn't include what was going on with me, right? 2014, I started working for Hewlett Packard. I was still a network and firewall monkey. I did not have lots of responsibilities or extremely high level permissions when I started there. But by the time I left, I was doing advisory for security architects. And that's part of the sort of like contrast in my career pivoting over time, because I did start as a network engineer who was responsible for some security appliances and gradually pivoted to more of security appliances are my home. Network engineering is just what you need to understand the lay of the land and to get the job done. So knowing that walking up to the ISO period, I had worked at Hewlett Packard for about a year and decided that I wasn't going to make that much money or grow very much because I had to keep doing the same repetitive work that needed to be done, mergers and acquisition stuff, which was useful and interesting, but also M&A means that team sizes change, right? So I was ready to make a change before the team size changed on me. So I moved on to a, another organization called Aero Electronics, where I was for about two years, including during the ICO period. I have to point out how helpful that was to me because doing firewall support and being a sales engineer during that time actually meant that I had a lot of downtime because I was not proactively doing change requests. I was not proactively jumping into major incident calls and support requests and stuff like that. Like I was at HP. Pretty critically, in order to pay attention to what was going on in the ICO period, I had to have downtime because holy heck, it was so nuts. Pivoting back to the thing we were talking about, Ethereum showing up. Wait, are you um, trying to tell me? that you did any research before you dumped money into ICOs? Well, I was the only one doing research for a group of a few thousand people at one time. And that's part of the reasoning why is that when I saw that Bitcoin wasn't accepted as the world computer, I thought that was actually really productive and reasonable because I very much like 
high security digital gold that could extend its security to other applications and not need to just, oh, hey, everybody come over here because that's repeating a lot of the same problems that we used to have, right? It's just singular power centers, effectively central planning over time, stuff like that. I knew of Ethereum. I did not get into Ethereum as it was forming because I thought, why would we rebuild the world computer in JS? That seems really inefficient. I'm super not interested in rebuilding a world computer as JVM, as an application-level language. I was not understanding of Rust, which was much more primitive and other things at the time. But I still understood how much I dealt with JS on a regular basis and how frequently it had operating problems, just really simple things that were necessary to secure it. And even if you put all those things in place, they take resources to run. I was really not interested in purchasing Ethereum early. And then I started seeing the volume of tokens coming. I was aware of ERC-20 before it launched. And that was what drug me back into doing those conversations, those research. We are back. This is evidence that there are forces out there trying to stop this conversation. (laughs) And I'm not afraid of them anymore. I was hiding from them for a while, but not anymore. Can you hear me okay? Better than ever. Where did I lose you? Somewhere around JS and Ethereum and the start of Ethereum. Is that about right? Yes. Yeah. So I was, I was aware of the conversation that happened at that Bitcoin conference. And I thought it was productive that we did not agree that Bitcoin should be the sort of world computer. The idea that this one system should be the system for compute and the system for value. I didn't think that was necessary. I didn't think the network was designed for that. I thought the network was designed for value. The compute and other utility things should be like to the initially didn't ignore Ethereum. I said, there's lots of other chains that are trying to compete and are trying to do similar things. Maybe Ethereum will be successful. Maybe it won't. And then I saw the ERC-20 standard coming and I said, okay, yeah, this is going to take off. It's not necessarily that it's so great or so special, but that it is easy and simple enough to most people who are already using the most popular coding language on the planet. That's momentum enough to make things make more sense. People don't like writing C plus applications. What things specifically about the ERC standard jumped out at you or made the case for that wider adoption? How do I say this? Besides being JS and simple containers, it was a really straightforward format. Open Zeppelin wasn't a thing yet, but the, the lines that you would need to issue a token or to manage a token were less than a hundred. So I thought that was good enough that people would be willing to play with something they could see on maybe two or three screens. And that would be enough to make adoption worth a thing. Not because I thought it was so great, but because it was easy that people would try it. That's why I ask, because I think that one of the big themes is in general dev tooling and always raising the bar of what's available and best practices and hopefully make things simpler so that more people can join. I wasn't a particular fan. I wasn't enamored. I wasn't thinking good. I was ripping apart JS over the wire at work. People, application owners would come to me at work and say, hey, our application is broken. Please help us solve this. And I would do a packet capture and see their JS and have to read through the whole thing and say, okay, here's where your application doesn't know how to talk to your other endpoint or server or client or whatever. For that reason, I knew that people were going to be knowledgeable enough to try this stuff. I didn't necessarily think it was productive. I thought it was going to result in a, a lot of people experimenting and I support experimentation, but. That's different from productization and actually painting anti-censorship products and stuff like that. Stepping stones on the way. I didn't actually want to do any of these engagements. I didn't want to get deep into ERC-20, 
but I was aware of it. I made some comments and then people started pulling me in and saying, Hey, Sheldon, you've made some comments about this stuff. We know you might know something, please. People are trying to get us to buy a token and we think it's going to make us some money. Can you help us understand what we're buying? Very small group of people out of thousands who are like, Hey, some help, please. And me being the idiot altruist that I am, I said, okay, if lots of people are going to get hurt, I'm probably in the right to go try to help them not get hurt, especially if they're asking for my help. And the asking went away very quickly. The thing that I should have done was for my own mental health, I back off and just work on my own audits or even make a business out of it. But I didn't, I was an idiot altruist and I just ran head first into the market with hundreds of people asking, Hey, can you review this for me? And most of the time I said, no, this is very obviously ridiculous. You don't have to be an engineer to read their value proposition and understand that it doesn't make sense. But a lot of those were, hey, let me show you the contract and let me show you how this is human trust and how you should look at their lack of a crunch base or that they don't have any legal registration or their legal registration isn't verifiable. So I wasn't doing really deep ERC-20 work. I'm not great on solidity. I'm just good enough to read and keep up and say, oh, okay. This is able to be changed at any time. Okay, but you have made some simple parameters here that are confusing, but also super disadvantageous to your ICO buyers. So I was not a Solidity genius by any means. I was just around and available to a group of people who were Solidity idiots. And I felt bad for them. So I, I wanted to help. You've pointed out something really interesting, which is engineers are usually not very good or not the best business people. So I know of a handful of engineers that had the best intentions. They did similar work trying to assess technical projects and even projects that were legitimate, as in the code made sense, it was a legit team, etc. They were just not in a good position to assess whether the ICO actually made sense financially. And we were all swept in by the, the tsunami. For the young children listening, the ICO boom was actually insane. There were projects that you didn't have to be an engineer, you didn't have to be a business person. You basically just needed to be illiterate to figure out that it was bonkers. Like it made no sense at all. And they were raising five, seven, 12, 30 million dollars. So there was a lot of hype and speculation. I've seen some parallels with the NFT craze recently, and I do wonder how that one is going to age, but I'll let you keep exploring these parallel well, timelines. Let me, to your point, let me cite a really good example product that I evaluated and still said, hey, high caution, there's legal and human trust entangled in this product, but it still looks like a good product. Envion was an ICO that I invested in, EVN. I did not shill it to anybody. A couple of people asked me about it. I did say, hey, I think this is a good idea. I think this makes sense. They were saying that they had already developed a business model to do mining out of shipping containers where they would drop them in locations where they could get the best possible energy and then worry about the network latency later and fiber lines as necessary, make network partnerships to make that make sense. As a network engineer, I thought that's actually pretty productive because being able to change the location of your mining facility gives you a lot of flexibility. I thought that was worth considering. Envion is probably a top one to cite, especially in the coloring that you mentioned, because the product was reasonable. They were regulated, registered, legal in every way. And then they got caught up in the court system because one of their founders wanted to take a legal action that wasn't considered acceptable 
under the statutes that they were trying to use in, I think it was Dutch law, or maybe it was a Swedish law or Swiss law, something Northern Europe, I can't remember, but that's an easy example of real product, real company, real people, not a scam, absolutely didn't work out. I put a few hundred dollars into their, I'm never seeing that money again. There's plenty of that entangled in the legal system. There was a battle that went on for years. To your point, there is a need for business mindset and engineering in the same breath to manage this kind of stuff. And it's frustrating how much that's necessary because I was trying to come from it at both sides to say, hey guys, I'm an investigator, I guess. If I'm doing this research on the smart contract for you, sure, I'll also go rip apart this company's financials. I've been doing that for way longer. I'm certainly comfortable doing background on these individuals and the company they're working for, no big deal. And it didn't help very much. It's, it's the same thing as the NFT space. Oh, hey, sorry, our lead developer had a disease. We're going to have to shut down the project now that we've minted. Sorry, guys. Like, it, it's very much the same thing. Sadly, the ICO boom and the catch-22 that it generated makes it pretty clear that most of those tokens were securities. And the reason why I came to that conclusion was actually from the very benevolent place of acknowledging that it is experimentation and wanting to support it. I saw myself almost as a backer or as a patron. Yeah, I want to put money into this thing to see it grow, to see it evolve. I personally didn't want the financial returns, but then you start to realize that if that team fucks off with the money, I feel scammed because what I was supporting or what it was intended to do like the human trust layer. And I love that definition because you've laid it out beautifully. There's human trust, there's legal trust, and then there's the technology trust. We have to have at least one, ideally two, of the human and legal trust in place first to be able to develop at least the primitives of the technology. You may argue that perhaps we have enough components now to be able to deploy fully permissionless or trustless applications, but even then you wouldn't really touch them until they are on-chain and verifiable. I don't know, do you have any views on that? I certainly wouldn't central planning or legal registrations as the first thing. I did start with the technology and saying, okay, you understand that the trust is minimal, that this contract can change at any time, that this is what it is. This is not just you sign a contract that acknowledges that you can be rugged at any time, but that you're acknowledging that's the deal that you want to walk into. I thought that made a lot of sense. Like in, in network engineering, there's this joke that's always made a PEBCAC problem exists between computer and chair or layer eight. It's the human layer up, up opposite the other seven in the network stack. These concepts are ignored by technical scope because they're out of scope, but it's still reality. This is still what we normally interface with. There, there is very few anonymous projects that I invested in or really said anything nice about for this reason, because there were not other trust devices that were available. But in the instance of, oh, hey, we, the team are going to comment and sign these other transactions to affirm that these are our wallets, even though this is the main contract, we're only going to touch the main contract with these wallets. There was some creative attempts to establish trust without legal registration, without acknowledging securities and things like that. But I think the biggest lesson we can learn from that came actually many years later with Polkadot interfacing with the SEC, which is if you promise to make certain software updates over time, even if that is a digital asset, 
by actually making those software updates, you're taking away some of the speculative nature of the product. I think that was the real journey that we were on at the same time. Very few products made it to the sort of Valhalla of being alive today, like MakerDAO and a handful of others that have survived. They're still not super welcome products. Lisk is still around. I think Lisk is an interesting system for businesses that really want JVM, that really want this like Java-based performance on-chain stuff. I think that's fine, but these are industry standards. They're not staples. They're just things that have not died yet, if you will. No, no judgment on Lisk or any other products. It's just there's constant sell pressure. And to mitigate that, you have to constantly be improving a product, which is a really difficult model for stability for any business, right? And that means businesses will be dependent on you for that. I guess it, when I was making a reference to having a stable legal structure, I'm actually like a very minimalist, very pragmatic. Recent events have shown us that regulators are not friends. But at the peak of the ICO, we witnessed multiple instances where projects actually went out of their way to structure things in a way where the legal structure was actually completely decoupled from the actual technology. Yes. First case was Tezos. They registered a foundation in Switzerland. They staffed it with a bunch of random Swiss people. And then when they tried to have effective control of that foundation, the Swiss people said, hey, wait a minute, we're independent and we have all the cash. And that was a beautiful shit fight in court. And I'm actually quite surprised that Tezos is still going and they were able to overcome those hurdles. But that was a clear example of questionable legal setups initially, to say the least. The other one that comes to mind is EOS. They raised $4 billion into an yeah. entity that deliberately and expressly said, we're not involved with the technology. We'll develop something and then somebody else maybe will put it on the mainnet like it was actually insane how much money went into something that was nothing so i think that there has to be a balance most serious projects have some sort of a foundation or some sort of like operating entities it's fine if it's for profit you just need to get paid and there needs to be commitment on-chain social benefit corporations is something that I'm dealing with right now in private conversation. A nonprofit, for-profit, what's the gap in between? There's a handful of different things that have social good entangled in. We should be able to make some money. So I think this is still a pretty fresh and raw conversation, but I don't mean to jump ahead. We've got lots of other topics to cover before we get headfirst into that. All I want to say as a parenthesis is I understand how there is a dire need right now to move away from some of the acronyms, which may be overused and lost meanings, such as NFTs and DAOs, but social benefit corporations may need some branding work. SBC is not the hottest right now. Funny you say that because when I say SBC out loud, I think deprecated AT&T legacy internet from the 90s. I think SBC Global the ISP that sort of predates AT&T's unification as a internet giant in the US. So yeah, there's definitely some branding to be done. I think I'm confused with SBS, but I was Maybe SBF? of the Broadcasting Network in Australia, which I'm pretty sure stands for Socialists Broadcasting Corporation. <laughs> oh, I didn't know about that. I'm joking. That's definitely not the acronym, but it could be. Let's go. I like how the long form means we can be a little bit comfortable and flexible. I think this is one of the topics I had on the list to talk about NFT security. Do you, can we get into that a little bit? Because the misunderstanding about a non-fungible token or about a trustless blob of data or whatever, like ordinals are not 
understood as non-fungible tokens because they're not tokenized. They are literally the media. They are literally that data. Like, I wonder if that's in scope for us. I think so. A hundred percent. So the way I had envisioned it in my head, which is not very structured, was I guess a theme was the evolution of the technology and just having a very clear understanding of where you are at any point in time. ICOs, mm. I enjoyed that you were able to identify ERC-20 improvement, adoption, but experimentation. You're able to identify that ceiling. And ideally, I would have liked to keep exploring those incremental improvements in the technology because I know that even if we work our way to today, right now, even the Octopus Network is going through some changes into Octopus 2.0. It'd be interesting if we could try to map out in a progressive way all the different players that start entering the scene. Do they bring any improvements? Are there any challenges? Well, let's focus on the ideas because the players all congregate to certain groups of ideas, right? So let's work back from the Ordinals one because it is still very much in this time period, 2013, 2015, 2016. The block wars, right? Coin cash, all of this conversation, it all came from the need for throughput, the need for capacity, the need for the Bitcoin chain to be not just viable, but reasonably profitable for operators. Right? Talking about things like ordinals and, and NFTs, we really should come back to, to your point, the primitives relative, and that is the block wars. So the idea that Bitcoin could have, let's say, larger than four megabyte size blocks, there's language to support that in the original white paper. So Satoshi did make comments about how block size should not necessarily always be one megabyte. And I was never a fan of it always being one megabyte. I said, okay, well, if we jump straight up to static 10 megabyte, that's probably too expensive for most people. That kind of sucks. Okay. If we stay at one megabyte all the time, we know exactly what the network capacity is. It's moderately low. Should we really stay here? I was trying to push the idea that block space should be dynamic within a parabolic disincentive of fees. So if you want a 10 megabyte block and you're willing to pay the network more than they are already making such that they make a profit and you're covering their operating costs, why isn't that sufficient for you to ask for a 20 megabyte Bitcoin block? Because that's hard to parse. It's not easy to index. So people didn't like that because there's this secondary data conversations about it. And I guess for full context, so the Bitcoin original, it's one megabyte given to this day. Which year does the Bitcoin network get forked and Bitcoin Cash implements four megabytes? And I think they did more than four, but I think it's 2015. I want to remember that it's 2015. I could be wrong. I've mm -hmm. definitely been smoking weed the whole time. So forgive me, my, my linear time isn't the greatest. I have to check external references. But yeah, that, that was the discussion is, okay, Ethereum's eating our lunch or there are other technologies that provide compute. Shouldn't Bitcoin be able to adapt in some way, shape or form? Or should Bitcoin just be focusing on its scarcity, monetary benefit, et cetera? And I was trying to explain to people, we can have it both ways. I still have lots of friends in BSV who are very creative and very adamant about changing the Bitcoin chain. And aside from some of the sort of political opinions that come with that, that I'm in some cases partial to, the truth is that the network of operators has to agree on changes like that. And I thought that my proposal was reasonable, but I never flushed it out mathematically because every time I came up with it in conversation, it was, it was just too nuanced. It wasn't well understood. People were saying either big block or small block, either the existing size or, hey, let's expand. One of the things that I've always liked about decentralization is that 
there are no limits on people creating alternatives. And the clearest case would be there's a fork. There's a contentious fork. Some people think A, some people think B. Both chains can actually exist in parallel. And over time, I guess we'll have an outcome. I'm really curious to see, with the benefit of hindsight, how you see that fork. Because it seems like Bitcoin, we're still with the original one. Bitcoin Cash hasn't died. I believe there's still a community. But to say there's a there's adoption may be a bit of a stretch. So I'm wondering whether it's even something about human nature that we're just not very driven to all migrate. You could even say Ethereum. There was a compelling case for Ethereum Classic after a contentious fork that reversed transactions. And for context, the community back in the day were mostly people that looked like you. They were very much driven by principles. The original chain being the one that survived even after that apparent transgression, as some people would refer to it, I think says a lot. I have to reframe you slightly on that because I think that Bitcoin Cash in a lot of ways hasn't succeeded. And it is very human the reason why that happened. It's Roger. Roger largely made it about him and took on so many controls and decisions that made it untenable to be in that space unless you were willing to trust his vision for what Bitcoin is. And I think that works for a handful of people. But of the sort of like the forks that came out of that period, I see BSV as the productive one, as the one that we actually are going to have conversations about over time. And it's not because of the Satoshi's vision concept. It's because of the way they approach block space. They want total 100% dynamic block space. I think that's overkill. That's too much. But that's still a better contrast than, oh, hey, we just want bigger blocks. Just making bigger blocks kicks the can down the road without acknowledging sort of current problem, right? If you literally just go from one megabyte to 10 megabytes, when are we going to go from 10 to 100 megabytes? Like, it, it's, it's not a purposeful conversation. So I was never a fan of Bitcoin Cash in that model. But when I understood that the alternative vision inside the Bitcoin Cash community was breaking out to say, hey, we didn't necessarily want bigger blocks all the time. We wanted the capability for bigger blocks. I actually really sympathize with that. And the first four megabyte block was created this year on Bitcoin in 2023. So this conversation really is back on the table. It's not some super retail friendly thing to be respectful, but among engineers, this is definitely still conversation on the table. Like the block wars are back is something I've said a handful of times this year. Coming back, the reasoning is largely this, like trying to be sensitive to all parties, trying to plan for different scenarios, like you said. And a lot of that was over planning. It was over assumptions. It was saying, well, people won't want to mine the Bitcoin chain if X. Maybe you shouldn't make that decision for other people. That's not very decentralized of you, sir. So that was my mindset on it is that we shouldn't have to have a single decision that impacts the size of the chain so direly for so long to say, okay, if I am willing to participate in larger blocks or block blocks above a certain size, then I'm willing to do this with off-chain data. Or, okay, we're going to talk about making it all on-chain data, literally all block size. Okay, fine. So let's say the block size is dynamic, one megabyte through 10 megabyte. You need an economic incentive and disincentive program to keep people at the regular size. If Bitcoin at capacity, right when we were having SegWit implementation problems well before Taproot and all this stuff, it would have been really nice to say, okay, Let's have a two megabyte block here, guys. This will be super helpful. The entire group of people who are willing to pay for transactions in this block, who are waiting to get into this block, instead of having them wait until tomorrow 
they have paid enough. Let them go first. We will put them together in one block instead of saying, oh, I paid 200 sats and you paid 201. So you get to go and then I'll probably have to wait until tomorrow. Like it, it is a nuanced conversation among engineers about psychology, to your point, that is where I think these conversations really break down, not because things are so assumptive, but because the nuance and understanding of human behavior around data structures and secondary indexing of Bitcoin and stuff like that, it's highly assumptive. It's based on existing business models that are saying that they're ready for volatility, but are actually not that super happy about volatility. Put it this way, if blockchair.com, one of my favorite explorers, because they index many chains, if right now they saw a 10x increase in block size from more than one blockchain, they could go out of business in a couple of years. Their costs increasing 10x for operation of storage for certain chains, that could be really harmful to them. So instead of just jumping from one to 10, I was saying, hey, look, it'll still work for these entities if they're able to parse different sizes. But at the same time, that was where that conversation died, is to say that organizations would be willing to tolerate that secondary volatility of, oh, hey, I'm not sure if this is going to be a one megabyte block. Maybe this is going to be a 10 megabyte block. That is more difficult for the people who are trying to build businesses off of the Bitcoin network, not necessarily the chain itself. So it is a nuanced conversation. And that's why we have to push for more diversity in Web3. There you go. No, I like it because back in the day at the blockchain center, it was hilarious. There were teams of engineers working on Web3 products. Most of them went home at night because they're tired. And then the people came at night. I guess I would have been more on the product or marketing side. We had some proper crypto anarchists, but it doesn't really matter which labels you put on them. At the end of the day, they're the users and they were the net promoters and they were driving growth. And more than once, there were some pretty clear instances. And if it was clear to me, then it was pretty dramatic. Clear instances were the message that the people were trying to convey or what they understood or what they wanted was just simply at odds with the technology. That's why I really appreciate you for correcting my stance, or I don't know what the wording was, but it was very- Just trying to inject some nuance. No, just trying to inject some nuance because that's the hardest part about these conversations is the sort of like mishmashing the human and technology detail at the same time. 100%. And from my mogul brain, or I guess coming at it from the very high level overview, as you keep talking about that nuance between the block size, I can't help but keep coming back to the near current model and dynamic sharding. So I'm really curious as to at what point of the story this near enter your horizon, what was the path there? And I guess ultimately becoming an Octopus advisor. I heard about near as a concept, probably closer to 2018, looking for interesting products and technologies as the ICO period was dying off. It was not what it is now. It was extremely different. And I didn't do much. I might've held some tokens. I'm not sure, but I thought it was an interesting concept because I was looking for things that more intelligent about managing block size, managing block security, managing how transactions would make sense. There was some interesting language in there from Ilya that I thought was worth paying attention to, but I really didn't give it its due. I didn't spend real time in near until 2021 when I was moderating in a Facebook group called Crypto Malaysia. And Aaron Ting, operations director at Octopus, he posted about this project that he was talking to. 
And I said, wow, this is incredible. This is really great stuff. This is absolutely necessary. I'm so glad to see you sharing about this, all this complex stuff. And I was the only comment and only a handful of people liked it or did the O face or did a heart or something. And I don't think I was the only person who understood that concept, but I, I think that there wasn't a super deep understanding for what app chains, multi-chain, bridging, interchain security, any of that stuff. That's not, those aren't common viewpoints, common philosophies that people dip their toes in on a regular basis. I was just in the right place at the right time because the ending of the ICO period for me ended with being a moderator in a couple of groups. So that was one of them. I definitely didn't want to just hang out with the Americans because as I explained before, China is part of my journey. I have plenty of friends in Malaysia as part of my journey as well. I just, I happened to get active in that group because there were, there was good conversation there. I didn't care who I was talking to or why I'm never going to meet this person. It's just, oh, hey, ideas. Oh, wow. Hey, let me learn about that. Oh, you can teach me about this. Thanks. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. And it's not that I completely ignored near. I just didn't understand the value of it because I didn't give it the time of day, not realizing that it had pivoted from what I had initially seen into what it is now. Knowing that they basically rewrote it to take in this sort of substrate base and fast finality and different run times and stuff like that. That's incredibly interesting. Near's current model is actually built from a substrate chain ripped into smaller pieces where you didn't need the grandpa module, where you didn't need the babe module. You just needed a macro runtime to make a series of other runtimes make sense together. And I did not really give near a fair shot until Octopus was thrown on my plate. And I looked into it and tried to understand why would Octopus make this selection? And after understanding why Lewis, Julian, and the others made this decision, I immediately became infatuated with Nier. And I have been helping people with social engineering on Nier since I arrived at Octopus, or at least shortly after, because I learned enough to be helpful. And I just, I think that Nier's model for block security can be best understood with BFT, which is instead of trying to make the highest security block every time, all the time, which is Bitcoin's mission on purpose, and that's fine, then be the antithesis of that. Let me choose if I want only one server to initially validate my transaction because I want it done quickly. And I don't necessarily care about giant anti-censorship capabilities, knowing that I can just, oh, hey, you didn't want to process my transaction. Oh, hey, cool. No problem. Somebody else will pick up my transaction. That's not a, a mempool type operation today. That's an RPC. I think it's round robin. I forget. But that's just literally being pointed at a validator to process a transaction through a network interface. So when I see near block space, when I see near blocks and how that works and how that's managed, I saw it as the, the antithesis of, oh, hey, we need top level block security all the time. I like right-sized security. I like right-sized products. I think that the best firewall in the world means nothing to you and me in our homes. It's an annoying thing that sounds like this. It's like nobody wants data center grade hardware in their home when they understand what that actually means for them. I think that Nira's journey for me was really lucky. I'm super grateful that I got tapped on the shoulder for Octopus because otherwise I, I might not have noticed Nira for a little while longer. And I'm obviously very infatuated because I've taken on another project, AmpleStream. I also work for them. But to my, to, to my joy, there's plenty of stuff to do with Nier. There is plenty of utility in Nier. And that is because we don't have to have this crazy fight on, oh, hey, every block needs to be the best block. No, blocks need to meet their reasonable use case as projected by the user. If the user is gambling with 15 cents, they don't need $30 worth of block security. They probably need maybe one cent. 
So that modularity is really what has kept me extremely interested in Nier. I'm still quite partial to Cosmos and Polkadot as well. I bought a Polkadot IOU before it was the DOT token. I did get into to DOT pretty early. I was talking about it and very interested in the research. Aaron's one of the people who let me know, hey, did you know you can buy this token before it goes on the market, even though surprise Americans aren't supposed to do that. I was a neighbor. I was like, oh, hey, I can actually get my hands on this asset at launch. Great. And at the same time, Adam was something that I saw as the best way to delude Ethereum of its responsibility of being a single virtual machine where, you know, Adam would help lots of other smaller chains do purpose-built applications to things that are specifically focused on, oh, hey, we only want to run this video game. That's all we want to do. So instead of trying to bind an economy to a contract on Ethereum with lots of off-chain resources for that game, why not just make a relatively small chain that has servers made of those resources where they stay accountable to each other? Like I, ha I have been focused on other things besides Bitcoin for a while, but that's why Octopus made so much sense is because it does recognize these other components about application specific chains, about right size block security, about interoperability, making sense, flexibility and solo. I know that I'm throwing a lot of technical stuff at you, but the principles are basically the same is that there was never a real consensus that we should have one world computer. And I'm super glad for that. Because saying that Ethereum should be that computer, it just negates all of the stuff going on in Ethereum. It, it puts too much pressure on Ethereum. It makes it impossible to, to be productive. It's diversity is really the big thing. It's not just diversity of thought. Diversity of thought is where it starts. But diversity of thought, when you get away from ignorance and you start getting educated about how distributed compute and decentralized compute can actually function and be productive, you end up with this idea that you shouldn't have this one place, like the idea that you come to one chain to help you interface with all other chains, this is not productive. I genuinely don't like that business model. There's three approaches. The first one is pump my bags. The second one is how do we get to mass adoption? You're thinking at it from like the product. I want to build a self-driving car. The third one is the actual engineering. If you understand how cars work, you can probably build anything. Could be my product, could be something that may be very valuable and pump someone's bags. That's why I've always been attracted to Nier because I think it is a place where people can build those products. And that's why I think we're in such an interesting stage now because we need to communicate to people what the chain can empower them to do. People ask me, oh, what's happening on Nier? Don't worry about what's happening on Nier. Worry about what you can build. What problems have you seen in the world? What ideas have you had? What has not been possible elsewhere? But that's the product side. And then the engineering wars or the engineering Olympics, as I sometimes refer to them. Pump your bags is a dying narrative. Thank goodness. I'm not sure if you've already mentioned it. But I'd be really interested if you could expand on why Octopus chose Nier. And what was the narrative or what were the aspects that made you fall in love with it after you found out? Disclaimer, I didn't choose Nier. I arrived at Octopus after that decision was made. But I did poke and prod pretty thoroughly. Hey, why is this the L1? Why is this the place? You could fork the relay chain of Polkadot. You could do these different things. Why is this the decision? And really straightforward, scalability was number one. Because if any Octopus contract is ever at the point of capacity for the network, instead of having to have this weird transition like Axie Infinity had to have, 
Nier could allow Octopus to maintain its own smart contract and stay on the network, becoming a witness to all of the transactions on the network, prioritizing the transactions for that specific contract at Octopus. That is effectively how sharding works in Nier. I really buy into that. I like that model. I think modular L1 or non-monolithic L1 concept, I think that's one of the most appropriate reasons why Octopus chose Nier. I didn't make that decision. I'm 100% in alignment on it. It just makes sense. To that point, Octopus actually has about 40 contracts right now, if I'm not mistaken. It might be closer to 35 at the moment. But that volume of contracts already means that we're rewarding different people on the network for taking our transactions, for working with us, whether they mean to or not. That's a great posture to transition from, okay, we're small, we're growing, we have a reasonable idea to okay, now we need dedicated compute. We need dedicated infrastructure. We still need to be able to interface with this other entity. We still need a capital momentum. We still need money to be able to move around, right? So this, this structure of near protocol being scalable, that was really like top of the list. Number one, um, number two reasoning, I think is capital management or MMR in particular, I guess I'll have to make this the nerdy thing because I always go nerdy when we have an option, the two of us. So. MMR is this thing. It stands for Merkle Mountain Range. That is a relatively simple concept in Rust to continuously rotate a hash. There are lots of really simple things like that in computer science that are just not feasible on Ethereum. And you'll see that's how lots of bridge technologies, Wormhole, Axelar, and others are made, is that they find something that they can consider a constant. They find something that they can not just trust, but can plan around. So when I saw how near is moderately reliable with the 400 millisecond settlement times, I thought that would work very well. The, the scalability and the way that that like operationally makes sense to have validator partners who would be willing to dedicate a smaller validator to our transactions or something like that, that non monolithic or modular L1, that was the first narrative where Octopus was explaining why near. And I really aligned with that. I thought that made a lot of sense. Definitely very interesting concept. Just to clarify. Near would technically be a modular or non-monolithic L1, is that correct? Yes, it's one of the only modular consensus algorithms out there. Doomslug is one of the only consensus algorithms that you can break into smaller pieces and still be accountable to the larger set. So it's really just done through BFT. There's some interesting articles on this on near.org that are relatively easy to read if you're not a computer science major. It basically explains that as long as you have 66% or minimum entities on the network, accepting a transaction and knowing that's good, then those two entities can propagate that information out to the rest of the network. This is behavior more like a directed acyclic graph or a DAG. I'm very fond of that eclectic structure. It's not a blockchain. It's like a two-dimensional blockchain. Those things already exist. We don't need to fork into that conversation just yet. But because I'm a fan of that sort of alternative technology type, when I saw that Ilya's design paid homage to that without totally getting into low security blocks, I thought that was the right way to go about it, to balance 66% good as good enough for security and saying, okay, that's good enough to propagate transactions out from two servers to more servers. That's the, that's, there's cube network. There's maybe it's IOTEX. I forget. There's a handful of different entities that do this, but near is certainly the most popular one that I'm aware of. Interesting. This may be one of those things you may have noticed that there are terms or trends that become hot because Ethereum starts tapping into them. 
but several of these things have already existed on Nier for a long time and maybe we weren't very good at communicating it or maybe we're just not focused on that tech layer because we're focused on the product level. The first example is account abstraction. We've had it for a long time. It actually works quite well. There's teams like Keypump doing some magical stuff with it. And I think it's really sad that we missed that wave or now we're fighting for stage time as Ethereum is talking about, about account abstraction. Modular and non-monolithic could probably fall into that category as well because I've been hearing these terms a lot and they seem to be praised, but I've been hearing it in the context of Celestia and things being modular to Ethereum somehow. To be perfectly honest, I don't fully get it, but it's good to know that Nier is actually in that category. Let's touch account abstraction for a second, because I think that actually Nier isn't going to get its lunch lost on this. I think that Nier is still incredibly valuable and a lot better account abstraction than Ethereum. To not go into a large rant about how Ethereum is becoming regulated and how the world is changing and Ethereum is bowing to world governments and stuff like, to say it very plainly and directly, the account abstraction model of the new ERC that was approved is designed for off-chain mempools. It's the least marketed part about this, but that's the thing we need to learn from it near. It's from a product perspective. They just took the least sexy part of this that I take the most issue with and pushed it into the dirt and didn't make it an obvious narrative. So what does that mean? When you do account abstraction on Ethereum with the current standard, you are literally asking for a queue that is not the Ethereum mempool to recognize your transactions, then process them, then get them back into Ethereum mainnet. This is how censorship will be managed in different jurisdictions. This is how Ethereum will serve account abstraction within a reasonable scope of governance that is amenable to global governments. I think that's actually perfectly fine, but it means that NIR's account abstraction is completely on-chain, where Ethereum's account abstraction is specifically off-chain, and you don't know about it on-chain until it's already made it through this other like corner of the validator set. So the the surface of attack or the risk, let's call it, would it be human trust? Yeah. Where is this offline mempool and potentially people could manipulate the information there because it's not visible or... It's the operators, it's the validators themselves. Easiest example right now, you could do Tornado Cash transactions, but not with an Ethereum validator in the United States. If you're connecting to an Ethereum service that has validators bound to the US, for example, in Fira, you're not going to be able to use Tornado Cash. Your transaction is going to fail. If you're coming from, let's say, Bali or maybe New Zealand, I'm not sure about NZ, then you have a chance to get into an RPC network that points to a series of validators or is a series of validators that then are allowing you to reach Tornado Cash. This is the same, like, it's not exactly the same, but like one for one from a product perspective and human perspective, this is the same kind of thing. It's not that there is someone who can necessarily revoke you. It's that when you're trusting a subset of the main Ethereum validator set, those validators have a chance to handle your transaction before it makes it to the main chain. If they have a blacklist for your address because you're freaking Osama bin Laden, then hey, you're not going to make it to the main chain because they can't be liable for your transaction. I'm not mad at that. I think that actually makes a lot of sense for a lot of people. It means that Ethereum adoption is going to be easier for governments globally. And that's part of the positioning of why Ethereum Denver didn't really have any enterprise sponsors giving bounties because enterprise Ethereum was a private event and it was completely separate from us noobs having fun. But specifically about the offline mempools, right? And mm -hmm. the information is on chain. It can be audited. 
we know if a validator is processing your transaction or not. What changes with the offline mempool? Can the information be altered offline in a way where we just don't have visibility? So you're missing one key detail that makes this make sense. The point that you submit a transaction to a validator, they have a chance to decline it. It is feasible. So that was already the case before this account abstraction model. But with the account abstraction model, you can have an entire queue of people, not just going to one validator, but going into this other mempool because they're working with a smaller set. They are an abstracted account. They are not a native Ethereum account. They are an account that was given their positioning, their abstraction by a subset of validators. Because that subset of validators gave that account the ability to function, they specifically have visibility to that account before it's going to reach the main chain. If you are in that smaller group of validators and you issue an abstracted account to somebody and they try to move it over to New Zealand or whatever else, that group of validators doesn't know that account. They're not going to be able to accept that transaction from you. You'll have to go back to the main chain to be able to get that transaction processed. So we're basically witnessing like a pseudo fork that's going to be I would to say Ethereum snail. Compartmentalization of jurisdiction is the way that I describe and perceive it. It actually makes a lot of sense. I'm a compliance officer, so to me, it's easy. I get it. But like, we are all for, for compliance. I get it too. I'm a I'm an Australian lawyer in the Supreme Court. Don't struck me out. Okay, this seems to be like an example of I don't know if you've been to New York. There's got they've got those like old buildings with a new building on top and then they probably bribed someone and they built some other shit on top. It's just a weird clusterfuck of real estate that doesn't really sit together, but it works for now, I guess. This seems to me like there are obvious challenges to patching things on top. And I'm wondering if you could explain how this is contrasted with the near account abstraction, which is embedded at the protocol level and how it may mitigate some of these challenges that you've mentioned around compartmentalization and potentially Soros control. So th this is actually much easier to explain at that level. Thank you so much for the setup. The near account abstraction is completely on chain because right now they are sub accounts, meaning that when you abstract from one account to another, that is an, one account saying directly, hey, I'm, I'm this tree of keys. I'm going to let this other key come over here and be responsible for this limited permission set, like the way it works with Keypalm, right? The guest book and all that stuff. Even if you're not using that Keypalm functionality, which is wonderful, I'm a super fan. But even if you're not using that, the sub accounts that are structured on near that is completely on chain and there's not a restriction. You can actually do sub of a sub of a sub because they're still just keys that are associated with each other on the main chain directly. That, that aspect of it does set up that a account abstraction model on near, in my opinion, should always be on chain. There could be different economics about it. There could be other changes that Ilya wants to make for different reasons, but it means that you don't need to do this normalization of the network the way that these action works on Ethereum, because when you abstract on Ethereum, you need a sort of counterparty. You need an entity to be responsible for that abstraction. On near, that is literally just two private keys associated together. So the sauce behind it that makes it possible is that Ethereum only understands public private key pairs, symmetric keys, just it's 
very boring. It's frustrating, but ASIM keys and one account holder with many keys is how it works on Nier. That's one of the reasons why I'm so fond of the technology. It is something that Octopus also set me up to learn about and explained why it's valuable and viable, but it did take me a couple months to really sink in and understand why that is so useful. From an engineering perspective, I knew immediately, but from a product perspective, I didn't understand how Nier was going to make it make sense. And it's not just Keypalm that they're doing to do that. Let me explain this way. On Ethereum, when replay attacks were more common, if you went to one contract and that contract got changed, that contract had a nonce that it could replay at you in order to take more ETH from your wallet effectively. That's not something that was ever possible on Nier because Nier has segmentation. Nier has one key per other account that you interact with because you're literally saying, hey, crypto is .near, which is my name. When that talks to another account, you need a key to establish that relationship to maintain that communication between those two entities. This is how enterprise works. This is how corporate communication works. This is how cryptography works in most business environments. It is not this, oh, hey, all we understand is SSL certificates, which is another different example of public-private key pairs. It wasn't this model of just treeing out from one or another linearly. To have multiple private keys is the power that makes near like really never need to get into this mode. But the, the modular consensus doom slug is the reason why I'm pretty confident that Ilya will never take it in that direction because it would take away a lot of the greatest value proposition of near, which is that private key structure being a functional all over the main chain modularly. That distinction between Ethereum having private public key and near having multiple is mind-blowing. It took me a while, actually, to understand it. And let's see if I can come up with a muggle example. Are you ready? Okay. I'm going to dump it down so much you may actually hang up. <laughs> so the way that I see it, especially from a risk assessment perspective, Ethereum is the same as using the same password for all your online presence. And with Nier, you can have a bit of a password manager, so you can tailor a different password for each application and there's no cross segmentation. May not be the best example, I know, but... I won't hang I up. No, I won't of, hang up. Because I just keep thinking of all these risks of people granting access to an application. When you sign in with Ethereum, you're granting access to your entire wallet. And then when there's been attacks, they can transfer funds or they can do different methods. It has improved since that initial days of common replay attacks, right? You do need to match nonces and there is no nonce that should match that wasn't initiated by you and stuff like that. This security hole on Ethereum has effectively been plugged. It was plugged closer to the ICO period, but it took a while, right? That was never in scope for Ethereum, for near. And yeah, I could be critical of your over distillation, but it, I think it's reasonable to say that when you're on Ethereum and you have one public key, you have one private key. So that is your one password that you're using for your identity everywhere you go. On Near, you don't just have multiple private keys to associate with your identity. There's also allowances. So if I was going to let a contract have some, let's say, permission to do something like on Near Social, when I go to click like, I don't have to click approve every time I click like on near social. Thank goodness. I'm inside the allowance number. I'm allowed to use up to 0.25 near just, I think that's the default number for most contracts. I'm allowed to use that number 
because I've already set a compartmentalized relationship, an individual connection between my account and that other account. That doesn't exist on Ethereum. We've identified several levels. There's engineering, which I know that there's engineers listening to this. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've been tuning out. <laughs> there is the operational security layer, which is super important. But then there's a usability layer. And I think that really captures neatly what I said before about Gigabrains working on the engineering. And hopefully the OPSEC is handled at the project level as well. And then that unlocking new levels of usability. So an example on the OPSEC level, I really like my account, Alejandro.near. Maybe it's not as cool as CryptoEase.near. But hypothetically, let's say there is a vulnerability, there's a breach, whatever the case may be. Say I've been exposed somehow. I left my computer open in a cafe. I had to run to take a shit or something. <laughs> it happens sometimes. On Near, I can just issue a new private key associated to the same account and delete the old one. So even if a malicious actor at the cafe while I was in the bathroom somehow accessed my private key, they will no longer have access to that account. It's literally like changing the locks to a door. It doesn't matter if somebody finds your key on the street. On Ethereum, you would have to physically transfer everything out of that account. Once someone has a private key, they are the owner of the account, essentially. And this is very problematic because most accounts wouldn't just be holding idle assets. They would have loans. They would have farming positions. They would have a lot of stuff that potentially can't be unwound easily. And then you enter into a second aspect, which is reputation. You may not want to abandon all your transaction history, all your interactions, if you have an ENS associated with that account. I do think we went on a little bit of a tangent. We started with why Octopus chose near and why you fell in love. I think we only covered the first aspect of the scalability. I don't know if there was well, anything the, else that you wanted to say. The second one is the keys. The second one is the key management. So oh. we're not totally off topic. Oh, beautiful. We're still on topic. So key management, fantastic. Anything else that we haven't covered there? Or is there a third one? Those are certainly the two main ones. There, there's other things that are valuable and that make sense. And that from like a ecosystem play, politics, et cetera, like those things work. But those were the two things that I really sunk my teeth into is the scalability that was immediately feasible, not promised, just already pretty much there. And that, yes, sharding promised a little bit, but hey, it's implemented. The, yeah, the scalability and the key model were things that I thought were more enterprise ready, were more like what I was working on at enterprise, were better engineering with the understanding of enterprise technologies and not just a repetition of public-private key pairs, stuff like that. To your point, I do own SheldonDeer.eth. I'm trying to purchase Sheldon.near. It's, it's owned by somebody who doesn't want to use it. So I'm just waiting for them to respond to my message. But yeah, I do see a lot of value in intelligent key models where you have to have your singular identity, but you can compartmentalize that. So yeah, we could move on to something else. I apologize. I didn't mean to be here for so long. There's lots of other things like interchain security and wacky stuff that I want to get into. Interchain security. So I think that we've established that you have been an early day hacker or fighting hacker slaves. Sure. Yeah, that's for the TikTok. <laughs> I neither affirm nor deny. We have also established or have had a glimpse of the evolution of Ethereum and then the modular non-monolithic L1s. And that really paves the way for the interchain security models. Perhaps 
Let's start by a really quick overview of what the Octopus Network is. In simple terms, how it is related to Near, and then that hopefully will ease our way into interchain security because my brain slightly melted over the last couple of days as I was reading the shit that you sent me. All good. Let's I'm take good. it easy. Okay, I can do that. So Octopus is misunderstood as its own chain. That's the place where I usually end up working backwards from to say that Octopus is a series of smart contracts on Near. Transparently, there is a relay assurance or something, a service that we use to make sure that those communications are extremely fast so they happen in less than one second. But if that service went away, it would take up to four seconds for that to happen. Realistically, we're fine with that. We're just, we're trying to make a nice user experience. It's not too expensive. So that means that the infrastructure for Octopus has always been dependent on the offering at Near because what did we really need from Near? We needed a place where we could run Rust code and, and plan it and plan around it and make calls between that modularized code and other code effectively. So when you look at the anchor contract, when you look at the contract, when you look at the different components of each chain, what from Octopus is that we are helping these chains come online and then with the modules that we give them built into their chains, they are calling to near. So this is sovereignty model. That's not super well understood, but I try to be really forward about this. This is how our offering is different, that you're getting into bed with us with a really significant degree of economic trust, but you do have the ability to rip that arm off whenever you want, because that is a completely sovereign chain. That is your entity. Now. We do run some validators as validators of last resort. If you're running less than four validators on your chain, yeah, we own you and we can decide to turn that product off if we want to. But that's true of any small validator set. And that's how you make a healthy one is by not having it be like below five. Even Axie Infinity was nine and those were relatively large validators. So coming back, what is Octopus? Octopus is a series of different pieces of code that's designed to support independence for independent chains while asking them to be dependent on us economically. So that our bridge, all this other technology and different stuff, the result is that the least proof of stake environment on these external chains is dependent on their connection with us for their token operating on near. Basically on their own chains, they can have anything going on, but we don't expect them to have giant capital inflows because what kind of centralized exchange or other entities are going to take in these nascent products whether they're ERC-20, whether they're SS-58, it doesn't matter what format they are. If you're a very young entity, getting liquidity is a really big part of your business model. It has to be. So that's basically how we designed our offering to say, hey, we want to sit in the middle of a technology partnership and a liquidity partnership. And that means that you have to be able to disconnect that from us if you need to, but also you're electing to keep that with us because we literally give you those benefits, technical support, updates, ongoing code improvements, because we have had NFT bridging on testnet for a little while now. And that is the only trustless NFT bridging that I'm aware of in, in crypto anywhere. Like these are, these are concepts that would be really difficult to manage for a solo chain, an entity that's just trying to work on what they're working on. They want to have an easy experience getting modularity with other L1s, with other products. That's been our model is to sit in the middle without sitting in the middle, meaning that our trustless nature or the nature that we use the word trustless is based on us designing code that operates at both ends of relationship that these chains need to use. So it is a relatively niche play. It's not for everybody.
So if you were to give us some specific examples, when you talk about modularity, you mean being able to engage with near mainnet and then near mainnet being that bridge to say a centralized exchange so somebody could withdraw into near and then push into the app chain. Can the app chains talk to each other? The app chains can talk to each other, but none have chosen to, to put that into production yet. It is a little bit confusing, but we have published some materials on how this works. Basically, the existing libraries for this are already wrapped into the modules that we require people to run, but it also requires running a special type of validator or sorry, a relayer, not validator. Geez, that relayer has to understand messages from both sides. So whether you're decoding substrate extrinsics, which are the way that those chains today talk in functions and transactions, or you're interfacing with a Cosmos chain that's using events, you have to be able to, to not just understand that information that's coming from the other chain, but affirm that on the other chain, what they say have happened has actually happened. That's the sort of governing thing of IBC. And that's part of why we're going to be relaunching some different parts of our product because inner blockchain communication is really just a simple operation to say, Hey, do you see me? Yes, I see you. Do you see me? Okay. Yes, I see you. It's I'll compare it to a VPN. Sometimes in engineering, we compare it to TCP with SYN ACK, ACK kind of stuff, but I'm already too deep in the weeds technically. So I won't go down there. It's just from a, from a conceptual perspective, it is access to that liquidity that near already has. That's definitely a significant part of it. The other part is really our services as a technical partner. Now, I guess I would be Octopus 1.0, people interested in deploying an app chain. Just before we dive into Octopus 2.0, there's two things that I'd like to get a better understanding myself. The first one is whether app chains on Cosmos are able to talk to each other. Yes, you can look at mapofzones.com if you want to see a nice little mesh of how they connect. Mapofzones.com. Yep, that's that's the IBC site that I hope we join soon, but it'll take a little bit more time. There's some some really deep stuff to go into there. Amazing. And the second one would be, I guess if you could give us an overview of what is an app chain or under what circumstances would a project consider building as an app chain over a normal application on near. Sure. So one of the things we don't ever do is poach from near. So that's the sort of like differentiation I initially start with when I'm talking to other folks who are active in near ecosystem is there's not a world where we look at you successful on near and say, Hey, come with us. That's not how that works. So application specific chains have really high levels of customization that they need to control. And they usually have governance that's relative to an economy that is relative to that operation. If you're talking about people paying to interact with your app, and then you have governance relative to that, and your product is all built into that same payment mechanism, you're probably living on a layer one. You don't have a functionality inside that app that's off chain so much that you need to have your own custom code, have extra modules, have different relationships with other chains, et cetera. So. The app chain model is that you don't just need to build your own product with your own sort of customization, but also that you need your own governance and gas economics independent from an L1. Because Near is so affordable as an L, it's honestly not noticeable to most entities. 
by the easiest example of how this sort of came into need in another instance is Axie Infinity. That's a really popular use case and instance because Axie Infinity took advantage of the benefits of Polygon. And in doing so, they basically saturated the network. They took, they, they were so popular. They were paying money to new users to join their platform and farm and do stuff. So because they had such a high level of activity, it was affecting gas markets on the main chain. And because the entire chain was focused on this one little application, so many other applications didn't work well. And Axie Infinity being a game, they needed other DEXs to be working well in order for their game to be productive if people were going to want to get tokens in and out of that game. So at that point, it became, I think, obvious to them. I'm grateful that they did it, even though some bad things happened, that they needed to have their own dedicated compute. They needed to have their own dedicated sort of mini chain or application specific chain, where even though they're not doing ultra high levels of customization, they were able to manage their own hardware requirements. They were able to manage their own keys, which is part of why they got hacked, unfortunately, because there wasn't really good security hygiene there. No, no disrespect. They learned from it. They did want to get customization in the future. They didn't have that super high level of customization at the time, but they did want to have their sort of own RPC network and other stuff in the future. So it's a different business model than L1 applications. So Axie Infinity started as an application on Polygon. And then where did they move to as an app, as an app chain? They became an independent chain made of Polygon. They basically forked Polygon to have just nine validators running that same code. And then they really upped the resources on that code so that they could effectively have their own consensus from, from Polygon. And I think that's really productive. I actually talked to the team that was working on Polygon Supernets yesterday. So I think that in the future, there is a good understanding among engineers that in the future, the, these kinds of relationships will be different. They don't have to be so over compartmentalized like they are today. Today, you are an app chain or you are an L1. You should have more enmeshed relationships than that if you're dependent on an L1. I think Octopus is a really good example of that. AVAX is a relatively good example of that. Polygon Supernets is a decent example of that as well, but they are sitting under some dependencies for that ZKVM and other stuff that they have going on at Polygon. Polygon is going to have a different posture where app chains will interface with that network, but that's not in production yet. That's how do I say this? It's already been built, but it doesn't integrate the rest of the new products at Polygon. They need to enmesh with each other. So that's something that's going to take a little bit of time. It's not that either one of them is behind. It's that they were working at a different pace on different products. Understanding the ever increasing web of Polygon products, it's going to require like an entire weekend. So let's not even try. But I guess to clarify, Axie Infinity could have also chosen to deploy as a parachain on Polkadot or as an app chain on Cosmos or Octopus. Is that correct? Effectively, they would have had a heavier lift to do that. So I understand why they didn't. It was just the most immediate decision to say, hey, this is what we're most familiar with. We're just going to keep doing this because we know it. Okay, here, let's solve our capacity problem. I think but it that's purely, sense. But that's purely based on the EVM nature of the existing code. Because hypothetically, if we were talking to some founders today who have a game that's going to have the same Ponzinomics and they can expect to have the same traffic as Axie Infinity, they would probably most likely go the app chain route. Is that correct? Pretty much, yeah. I would include Tendermint as part of that decision because having almost instant finality in the way that Tendermint does it on Polygon, 
I think that was why it was interesting to them for game purposes. If they had chosen to come to a frontier substrate chain with Octopus, if they had chosen to do that with Polkadot or to work on something like Evmos in Fork Evmos in Cosmos World, it's not just that they would have had more work to do. They wouldn't have had as fast finality. They would have been looking at higher levels of block security when their game was dependent on very low levels of block security and just immediately settling transactions. And last one, before we jump into Octopus 2.0. Substrate is Polkadot. Tendermint is Cosmos. Octopus is Substrate as well. Octopus is both, but also neither. Yeah, Substrate is the underlying system in, in Polkadot, the relay chain, the parachains, energy web token. There's lots of other products, solo chains that are made of that. Substrate is the bundling of runtimes. So effectively, that does include near as well, except that it doesn't look like most other substrate chains because it doesn't use the two main ones, Grandpa Babe, for starting and ending blocks. But the only reason I'm nitpicking this a little bit is because these are the language that we use like in macro. But when you look at the sort of engineering components these things are relative to, substrate is just a bundle of runtimes where Tendermint is very specifically a consensus module. So... There's lots of chains in Cosmos that are not using Tendermint. They might be using Comet or some other BFT product. So it is a little bit confusing, but the substrate part being the sort of like outer container and Tendermint being a component of what is that total container and other ecosystems, that's how I would describe it in layman. The reason why I wanted to clarify that is because originally the narrative for Octopus, I'll tell you the word on the street, the layman. We can probably try to identify what is true and what is not. Octopus was sold as a modern polka dot or as an improvement of sorts. Some of the points that I would often try to explain to people without actually having the knowledge was that polka dot is limited to 100 parachains, which may seem like a lot now as we're in the process of coming up with those really good use cases. But it's actually not that much when you think of an entire world and a growing industry. That limitation makes it very expensive to set up. And there may even be a negative incentive there around the more successful your chain is, it goes back for auction. So I can 100% foresee some movie-worthy scenarios where you're basically extorted. You're a victim of your own success. So Octopus was sold as a very nimble, very affordable way of getting started. And there was always a pathway for people to be able to graduate into Polkadot if they required as they yep. grew. Is that a correct assessment? Why am I missing? What could be further clarified? To clarify further, I would say that is the exact narrative that we started with when we launched it has changed because the relay chain has gotten cheaper to pair chains because ephemeral blocks is now the solution that Rob is talking about where you wouldn't necessarily have to be a pair chain to buy uh, functionality from the relay chain. Like Polkadot has matured significantly in the past year and change in the face of our sort of scaled down offering because the limit's really closer to 126. But to your point, the limited number of parachains is also up against the sort of like cost paradigm. It's up against their economics, whether inflationary or deflationary at that time, based on capacity and usage. But also is within a certain economic capacity. We're not inflationary, for example. But that scalability for unlimited chains, it is designed for solo chains. It's designed for chains that have finale that may want to get broken into that best practices of many modules or reaching the relay chain for all that different XCMP stuff. 
But if you want to use the benefits of Polkadot right now, and you don't want these like super high scale security, really interesting things like off-chain governance that's directly connected to on-chain governance, that's cool stuff, but that's expensive. And that's functionality that you're paying for today when you come on Polkadot. So just to, to refine a little bit, our offering is designed to be right-sized for solo chains, where today solo chains can decide to establish a relationship with Polkadot if they're willing to dilute their economics or do a raise or anything like that. It was never just a, a cost balance, but it's a combination of cost balance and requirements because keeping up with parachain updates, it, it's something that needs to be done. They do make lots of changes to the code. You got to keep up with that stuff. We're literally the helping hand that does that for the chains in our ecosystem. So making fewer updates, helping people actually push those updates. It is a different offering than saying, okay, you're going to enter into this peak technology. They are the ones who started working on it. They've got great innovation for you. Like all respect to Polkadot. Absolutely. But from Octopus standpoint, we're completely geared towards smaller chains, i.e. solo chains. And they can still migrate to Polkadot if they want to move from that sort of condensed palette model model to a more expanded palette model, which is not as easy as I'd like it to be, but it's a work in progress. A day in crypto is a hundred thousand years in the real world. It's important to keep up with these narratives. For all the shillers out there who listen to this podcast, let's make sure that we update our selling pitch books. Now, the reason why I wanted to make that distinction between Polkadot and Cosmos and try to place everyone in their own compartment is because there are two things that have really entered my radar. One, it's probably a little bit, has been there for longer, and that is IBC communication. I know that part of the Octopus team is working on that bridge, and apparently that is going to give near superpowers. We can probably unpack that in a little bit. But the other one is very fresh. It's very spicy. It's coming from the community call summary that you sent me. It's a Medium blog post. I'll include it in the show notes. And there is a comment there from the founder of Octopus, Louis, talking about, let me see if I can find it so I'm not misquoting him. Here we go. Overall, adoption rate of Substrate is also somewhat hindered, and some teams are also turning to using the Cosmos SDK. Therefore, a key focus of Octopus 2.0 is to cover the Cosmos app chain market with a larger and faster growing market. I found this to be fascinating because the Octopus 1 offering, I think it's solid. But obviously, it has a bunch of assumptions tied to it, both at a product level and market level. It's very interesting to see the core team adapting, evolving, and growing to meet those needs. And correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like we're shifting or expanding from that initial focus of being basically like a baby polka dot that caters to a different subset of people, but in the polka dot side, to being much more cosmos aligned. There was even some wording there in the community call about Cosmos app chains being able to run as an Octopus app chain. So it'd be really good if we could start making sense of this, because this is the brain melt that I mentioned before. Sure, sure. Absolutely. So I, I'm definitely used to the brain melt stuff. There's a lot of complexity here. We have, uh, I think, 120 repos on our GitHub. So totally understand. There's a comment I made earlier. We're both, but neither. We 
always had a relationship with Interchain Gamba because we were asked to work on ICS-10 for them. That is the component of IBC that was supposed to help Substrate and Cosmos chains interact. So we already were in that mindset of wanting the Substrate chains that we're supporting to be able to talk to Cosmos chains. It's a natural development for us to want to support Cosmos chains directly, right? There's a extension of that about how near will be the asset securing those chains and some different stuff like that. But that's more complexity. Let's work on the complexity we have here. So this model that Octopus is gradually flushing out, I'm going to be excited to see if we decide to call it 3.0 as well, because there is a really obvious next development in this. It is just to be a app chain suite for app chains that want to start, but still need relationships with larger pools of liquidity. If you go to Cosmos right now and you want to start your own chain, like Joe chain was really cool earlier this year that I thought that was really interesting. Out of a joke, a couple of people popped up validators and said, hey, we're going to run a chain. Why not? It's fun. This is the kind of thing that Octopus doesn't want to support because it doesn't make sense for the capital security relationships that we already maintain. The least proof of stake system means that you put down some money and then you get some service in return, right? So we want that to apply to multiple types of app chains. What am I saying about 3.0? This is a little bit like a secret, but not that secret if you read between the lines. We would love to also support Ethereum-based chains. It doesn't mean that we're trying to replace AVAX. It means that today you can already run a substrate chain. <laughs> you can already run a substrate chain with us and use EVM modules. And the first chain to, to do that has hesitated to launch because there was some market trouble. FTX was the weekend of their launch, so Unique decided to hesitate a little bit. That's why they're still pending. But waiting for Macro to settle down, which is a difficult thing, but at the same time, we're trying to support their decision. It's their chain. However they want to launch it, we're here for them. So that model of supporting different types of app chains means that we're effectively a technology service that is helping people manage capital in order to get the benefits of our help and stay associated with a great L1 like Nier. Because if you did the same kind of thing on Ethereum, you would have lots of really untenable relationships with an entity like Octopus because we would literally have to be between you and that other L1. And the way that we've designed it, we live on near completely. If you go to mainnet.oct.network right now and you want to touch and play around with what we're doing, you'll notice that you need to connect your near wallet. If you go to the bridge page, yes, you do need to connect the other type of wallet, which is a substrate wallet. But if you notice that you're on the near wallet, then you're saying, okay, wait a minute, is OCT a near token? Yeah, OCT is natively a near token. That is the property that we're using to make this sort of app chain service for multiple types make sense, where doing that on Ethereum would require us to have our own chain, have our own servers, have some sort of middleman type posture. The model that Julian has always been working on that I'm personally a fan of is to not be a middleman, but to create modules of code that exist on the completely independent side and on our side. And when I say our side, that should effectively be an L1. It should not be our own chain because that would mean we're taking on too much financial responsibility. We're taking on too much compute that other people aren't going to help us with. By being on an L1, those 35 to 40 smart contracts they are operated by other individuals right now. We don't need to be the, you know, the shard that runs them because the volume's not that high. So this whole model is not to tease you about Ethereum chains coming necessarily, though there are repos to, to show some work on that stuff. It's just the example that IBC as the way that we're working on it is specifically for our chains. This is actually the, the perfect moment to drift into this IBC conversation that 
is a little bit complicated, but is also way easier to explain from a technical perspective. So, I But just really briefly, and I'm sure that we'll keep coming back to interchain security because it is a mammoth. And honestly, once you start talking about IBC, it's all connected. Leasing security is a concept that keeps coming up. It was actually something that I missed when I told you my layman description of Octopus, but it was actually included. It is part of the original pitch. The original pitch was, it's also very cost-effective because you inherit the near main security. Yes. So as opposed to every Polkadot parachain having to make sure that they have the minimum security, you already have the near main net. Now, I'm going to tell you how my mogul brain has been explained or how I understand security models, and then we can probably work our way up from there. It's a relatively straightforward maths equation. If you have $100 billion worth of value on NERD and there's only $1 billion in validators, you can figure out a way whereby the cost of basically having more than whatever 60% of the validators is lower than what you can steal or the damage that you can do. So this creates some very complex scenarios for many applications. Like for instance, I was talking to the open forest protocol people. They were like, yeah, we estimate to have anywhere between two and $10 billion worth of carbon credits in whatever time frame." So you can see how there needs to be a proportional relationship between the value of the assets that your chain holds and the security that, and the value of the assets that secure it, because otherwise it's all going to go to shit. So there's no shortage of people out there that are very crafty with malicious intent. So that model of leasing security, final muggle analogy. And by the way, some people, actually one person calls me the human shard. Let's assume I'm a blockchain. And I need to get started. Got to go to, got to go to town. Got to go to work. There's a massive difference between me renting a house and me buying the house. We're talking like a shit ton of money difference. Very low upfront cost per month, and I can grow with the house. Maybe Harry Potter style shit. And me I'll, buying I'll put it in the middle. I'll put it in the middle at least, right? Because. Rent, you have no immediate connection, right? You give me money. Oh, hey, you stop giving me money this month. You're out, tenant, right? If you own the house, it's your property and you have a relationship with government and the army is supposed to go in force if you're having a problem, et cetera, right? The lease aspect means that there is a more, not just nuanced relationship, but that there is some liability extended from the person who owns the property to give into the leasee, Right. That's the way I would describe this because we do have a give and take relationship with our chains. We, we, we don't want them to necessarily leave unless they're leaving for productive reasons. But that, that lease design, it is effectively layered security because when you come to Octopus, the first thing that you're trusting is our contracts. The second thing that you're trusting is substrate code, which is we already use, we, as you may know, we use stable versions. So that stuff's already audited by Web3 Foundation and Polkadot teams. In the case of Cosmos SDK, it's the same thing, Interchain, Gamba, informal systems, et cetera. So that security means that you're getting some immediate code security based on the type of product that you use, substrate, Cosmos, or otherwise. But then you have security through us, which is what we're extending to you from the near mainnet in the form of capital. And under that capital, you have the near validator set. So to me, you, those three different components, the initial code already being proven as safe by somebody else, 
the capital that we're helping you get from one chain to another, and then the backing of that capital as the near validator set, that is a relatively unique offering. It's not for everybody, but like that type of design is not necessarily to say, oh, hey, we're better than Celestia. No, it's different. Celestia has modularity that's really useful in managing storage and network calls and all kinds of stuff. And I'm a fan, honestly, I'm excited to see what Celestia is going to do for Cosmos and with Cosmos, but the, the larger security posture is specifically supposed to be that you aren't just trusting us to do X. We're in that sandwich of those three items, right? That code is somebody else's code. We're borrowing it. We like it. We're using the stable versions. The validator said on near it, that's not us. We don't manage or run that. But that's like sandwich of security where we're in the middle providing some modular code that helps you extend capital from near to your chain. That's our main thing. But at our back and our front, we have these other components where people who are also having lots and lots of money, billions of dollars invested into their chains, they have a direct motivation to make sure that some just regular old malicious actor can't just pull up and spam the chain and take it over. So interchain security still, but we're getting to IBC and Octopus 2.0. From my point of view, moguls represent, there's actually a big problem when you think about the security layout, because you would really hope that there are a ton more products that will eventually have an app chain than there are people that are able or willing to participate in the security of every single one of these app chains. Like, how do you even keep track everything that is launching and be there early enough because it needs to be secure from day one? Like, the logistics just get really complicated. So, yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that interchain security. Not to cut you off, just near, near solves this. That's why, because this is something that I've discussed with a, a couple of different people in Cosmos. They're very much with me on the idea that Near's scaled down block security modularity, that doom slug consensus we were talking about before, that means that you can start at a lower common denominator, right? If I need to match the security of the parachain network to be able to interface with them, that's a high cost that I have to come up with. If I'm running a small chain and I just want to play this game or provide a service or do some weird software experiment, if I'm doing all of that to raise up to this level of security and economic viability. It's expensive. It's a pain in the butt. Like, sure, Polkadot wants you to be really comfortable that it's worth it. And in many cases it is, but in many cases for solo chains, their relationship to join up with the parachain system is kind of upside down because they would have so much more to do than they would benefit to receive. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I don't know if you want to touch the IBC communication layer, or if you want to introduce Octopus 2.0 and the restaking concept which I think we've been planting the seed. I so actually don't know if they're the same thing, so I'll let you take it from me. They're enmeshed. They're different, but they're linked. Let's start with the IBC conversation because it is moderately complicated, but I've distilled it quite a few times. I want to see, hey, I don't call you muggle, but you can call that if you want. I want to see how easy this is for you to absorb. IBC is inter-blockchain communication, meaning that you just have attestations that each independent party can confirm. Hey, did you actually move this asset? Yes, I actually moved this asset. Oh, really? Did you? Oh, I see it now. Okay. Yes, you did. That structure is being used right now in the EOS blockchain space. It's not being used over a network. It's doing adjacent inside one server that is being worked on in Avalanche. I forget what it's called. Maybe it's Antelope. I'm, I'm mixing up the name. 
heck, I should know the name for this. AVAX has a product they're working on that does this in a similar fashion where different chains would communicate with each other to say, hey, did you make this transaction? Yes, I see that you did. That is really the, the sauce to know here is that IBC is effectively unbranded. It is not in any way anchored to Cosmos, except for them initially being the ones to publish this concept. So that that's the place where we start understanding IBC to notice that the five major ecosystems that have IBC implementation, I think there's actually seven, if you include Hyperledger at the moment, um, those different implementations, they are all IBC, but they are not all able to interface with each other. That's the most important understanding to start with is because IBC is a standard of communication. It is not a bridging standard. It's more like a messaging standard or a standard between chains affirm that they're actually doing what they say they're doing. So what that means is that you could have Composable working on IBC because they're responsible for ICS 11. You can have us working on IBC because we're responsible for ICS 10. You can Cello working on an IBC implementation, which they are. There's, I think there was one in Harmony that might've been abandoned. I forget it. I don't know if that one's still in prod or not, but all of these different little spotty IBC instances that are popping up quietly all over the place, they don't all interface with each other. And this does relate to Octopus 2.0. So just bear with me a little bit here. The context of the past of IBC relative to Octopus, to near to myself, it is the sort of narrative and slight misunderstanding that Octopus was going to deploy IBC that would be useful for everyone everywhere. We did want that, but also that's really hard to do based on the scope we were given. The scope we were given is the start of substrate blocks. The scope that Composable was given is the end of substrate blocks. If you actually see how our projects are different, this makes sense, even though it's disjointed. It's just a result of a misunderstanding from Interchain Gumba, which has since been obviously restored and corrected, and they get it now. It's just, it's a work in progress to make this make sense. It means that by Octopus being responsible for block headers, we're in a perfect position to sit on near and use tooling that doesn't require our own chain to manage the interaction that affirms, oh, hey, did you actually do this? Composable needs their own chain to be able to do the same operation because their scope is different. They're looking at the end of a block being formed. They're not looking at the start of a block being formed. And that is almost exclusive to, to substrate. But again, that's more niche engineering stuff about how blocks start and blocks finish. So looking at those two players are probably the, the first two to start with because they're the, the names that we know in near eco. I have a talk coming up with Brainjar, I think tonight or maybe tomorrow. That's a CEO at Composable because we want to discuss a way to make this make more sense for everybody where we are all working on different products that are shoulder to shoulder. They're not going to be able to enmesh with each other until we have some time to actually implement them, to use them, to see how people want to interface with these offerings. So where is this talk taking place? Is it going to be online? Oh, it's private. It's just me and him. Yeah. It's not a, a spaces oh, or anything Oh, I thought you like were that. giving just, a presentation sorry, sorry. because I was like, I need to see this. <laughs> the result will be that we have a Twitter spaces or some other kind of presentation and talk together to, to make this make a little bit more sense to people who don't deal with block finalization and stuff like that. But as soon as I started explaining this to other people in Cosmos, their first answer was, wait a minute. So near IBC is being held up because of substrate block. Yeah. So that's the place that I to inform a little bit outside the layman or outside the sort of common narrative is that near, because it is at its guts, a substrate chain has been inadvertently focusing on substrate as the first chains that it would connect back to. And while I do really support this, I also think that shouldn't be a reason why near doesn't talk to cosmos IBC. Because there are challenges to get 
substrate IBC to function with blocks that don't settle in as fast a time. Give you an example, substrate blocks frequently settle an hour or more after the transaction is made. That's part of the system. That's part of how it's intended to work and that's fine. But to do that same attestation of, hey, I see that you actually made this happen. Hey, I see you actually made this transaction. That's a different scope because you have to wait to make sure that block is actually done. Not that it can be replaced by another or just not finalized. Like that is a really tough design challenge to say, okay, here we've got near with fast finality where transactions are going to be done in less than two seconds. And here we have substrate where a regular transaction on a regular chain could take more than a few minutes to actually finalize, not to settle. Substrate is referring to Polkadot and their app chain ecosystem. Yes, relay chains as well, every component. The thing that I mean to convey is that I think I expressed this on the near day main stage at East Denver that Odnir wanted to do the right thing and be a prioritizing substrate as a quality ecosystem to partner with. Lots of people who are active in Nier also are familiar with stuff going on in Cosmos, et cetera. Like Polkadot is the sort of more institutional friendly entity. It makes more sense to go higher common denominator instead of lowest common denominator. But from a engineering perspective, highest common denominator has much steeper challenges, costs, and requirements than just connecting with somebody like Chihuahua in Cosmos. Chihuahua is a chain in Cosmos that's mostly run on kids' gaming computers. It's a known shitcoin on purpose. It's just their dog coin thing. There's some other dog coin stuff there, but that's a popular dog coin thing in their ecosystem. Do I think that they should have to wait for really intense institutional grade block security to connect up with Near when they both have the finality to finish blocks in enough short period of time to talk to each other through IBC. No, I think that it's, it's unfortunate that the design challenges of substrate make it harder to make a cohesive offering between ecosystems, but I don't think that's a reason to exclude Cosmos from the conversation. From a regulatory standpoint, I definitely support if Ilya is not in agreement with me on this, I would understand the reasoning like pretty straightforward that Polkadot has done great work with Web3 Foundation. They've spent a lot of time talking to the SEC. I, I love the way that they're not a security-ish a little bit. Like, that's really interesting stuff, how they did that. I'm very familiar, happy to discuss. But that's the antithesis of Cosmos, where Cosmos is Joe Chain and Chihuahua and, hey, we want to try this. I think that Near wants to be appealing to institutions and make partnerships with large entities, and they're doing that, and I support that, and that's great. But that's not a reason to push Cosmos to the side because we both have this lowest common denominator of block security that interacts really, really well. And that means fast finality. That means block security that you can actually scale up and down, not just start at a super high level and say that it's great because it's high. And then that, that means that over time, Cosmos may have a more deep economic relationship with Near before Polkadot Eco does. Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of new things here and new ones that will take me a while to process. But one thing that I did notice from ETH Denver was that there wasn't really much of a presence from Polkadot, or at least the things that I attended to and the things that I wasn't paying attention to, it didn't really jump out at me as much. Would you say the same for Cosmos? No. Interesting. Okay. I at least interacted i'm definitely biased because what's his name hartnell hartwell the dao guy yeah the dao guy i saw jake twice at dao planet first 
And then on stage, you were the greatest moderator that day for that panel. There is something that Cosmos has that, to be honest, I find very enviable. I don't even know if that's a word, but it's very desirable. It's very admirable. They've got a community. They've got energy. They've got people there that give a shit and are experimenting and they're shipping. There was actually an offhand comment, which I don't know if you caught or if you remember, but he said, this is what you can build when you can get Google-level engineers to work for you for free. And it was not a reference to exploitation. It was a reference of very strong alignment for a mission and people willing to do their work because they enjoy it. And it's not the enjoyment of each line of code or whatever engineers do. It's the people, it's the movement, is the journey and the output. And I was just thinking, damn, maybe Cosmos is a place to be. Like that culture I can see pushing through challenges and being able to attract the right people for the job. So I guess that the challenge that I put to you now is do we have that culture or how do we manage that tenuous relationship that you have explained in very technical terms between the Polkadot and the Cosmos ecosystem? And somewhere there is an IBC bridge that we started. We can get between the two of them through Axelar at the moment, but let's talk about it. First of all, there were Polkadot events at East Denver. I attended a couple. I was happy to see some folks in person who I'd never gotten to meet before, see some other friends who I've met and I'm happy to link up with them. But there was a much, much higher volume of Cosmos folk in general at East Denver. So I, I can definitely understand why you would say that. East Denver, especially being spread out at different friends, you got to do the, you got to do the pre-planning and really intend to be jumping around from place to place. I did. It was exhausting. Maybe I'll make it a tour next time. Did okay, you we're... spend more money on Ubers than you did on your flights? <laughs> the, yes, by a long shot, because my flight was only $50. And Uber was much, much more expensive than that. Yeah, I wasn't able to quite make the bar for the joke because I flew back to New Zealand and I missed flights to Mexico. So technically I spent a lot of money on fucking flights. But the point is the same. The venues were very spread out. And this year Uber must have made, like Uber drivers, 100% were making more money than the people that attended the conference. The for sure, for sure. So you attended me... several Cosmos events. Let me talk about that a little bit because asynchronous Rob, as he's known on Twitter, I think his name is Rob Hayermeyer. Rob is one of the founders of Polkadot and he spoke at the Cosmos event. I was very happy to see him there. He was applauded. He was not shunned out of the room or anything like that. He came to basically interface with Sonny's interchain security talk, which I thought was hands down the best talk in Cosmos. That was fucking awesome. And the political references were hilarious. I loved it. But the idea that those relationships are so disjointed, it's something that doesn't exist as much at an engineering level. When Rob came to present, he spent a lot of time talking about interchain security principles and how Polkadot might change and do these different things. And one of the main things that he was focused on in his talk, though it was the last, I'd say 30%, maybe 15%, was about ephemeral blocks. And that is the idea that you wouldn't have to have a chain in order to buy a block space. If you are Immutable X, if you are a SAP service in an enterprise company, if you're in Hyperledger at a business, you may still want to purchase block space from the relay chain to get something done in public because you don't want to have a private legal relationship with that parachain. That's a huge ball and chain. That's a huge cost and unnecessary operation. Why would you do that when you can just 
permissionlessly or in a permission fashion, get on with that other chain, relay chain or otherwise, and pay for some block space when you need it. I think that was a really great contribution to the interchain security conversation to say, hey, look, obviously you can come to Polkadot and buy our super expensive stuff, but we still want to do that in a more modular fashion. We understand now that we can't convert you guys from your existing tech stacks, but maybe from your tech stack, you can take still some advantages from our existing services, solutions, work. I thought that was really critical. And if you were at the Cosmoverse event, I think that those were really the two most prominent talks. The other panels were good and interesting. And I appreciated Zachy and a bunch of other folks who I'm always happy to hear speak about this stuff. But transparently, that's the way I see this working is that Polkadot has spent an incredible amount of resources, volume, time, human costs, whatever you want to call it. They're really trying to be this institution in the blockchain space, and they're doing a decent job at it. I'm not mad at it in any capacity. I absolutely support it. It makes sense. Cosmos is very much not that. Cosmos is very much, hey, if you want to talk about liability, ask the other guy's chain. That's not my chain that did X, Y, and Z. That is a much different liability posture than having to interact with people's contracts directly on a single monolithic L1 or have my UTXOs mixed in with Osama Bin Laden's UTXOs. Like it is a really different business model and liability model. So that combination of compartmentalizing liability, but also being able to dilute that compartmentalization to the point of productive on-chain interactions or just in general stuff, it is the reason why NIR is a great fit to sit in the middle. NIR has been positioning for institutions for a while. There's a bunch of reasons why institutions like NIR. NIR has also been trying to position for experimentalists, which it hasn't done a super great job of but still does to some degree. I wish they would support that ZK library from Hackachain and a few other things. But at the same time, respect, I understand why they don't. So I think that the reasonable sort of thing to know is that because NIR has modular consensus, there isn't a need to get into account abstraction to manage liability so that NIR can interact with different other blockchains in a productive manner, whether that's IBC, whether that's exchanging assets, whether that's literal interchain security where a near validator will validate blocks on another chain, the flexibility of near, the sort of lowest common denominator and cultural positioning means that we do want more experimentalists to work with us. The easiest way to do that is not to try to convert institutional folk. It's to interface with experimentalists like Cosmos Eco. And they're not all experimentalists. I don't mean to put them all in that period. Like I think Akash is a great institution. They're slept on all the time. I'm very happy to see what Greg is doing with AI and some interesting stuff over there with hosting GPUs. So there is some nuance in this nuance that I'm already making a mess of. Ooh, that is a mind fuck. Let me distill a little bit. Let me try one more time. Not because anything was wrong there, but just really quickly. The idea that Near can have very lean security, can have this very two out of three kind of validation, that is why it should be appropriate for Cosmos because that lowest common denominator matches up. But also you can buy higher security. You can work up to a parachain grade institutional appropriate product and infrastructure in the same place. Calimero is the easiest example of this because people can literally run their own chain connect to near mainnet, have functions going back and forth and not be liable for anything that happens in the public. That modularity on near is something that people are still sleeping on. We talk about it in narrative. I've seen you, me, devbos, others, like we, we communicate about this. 
but it's an engineering concept. It's so tough to understand from a cultural level because you have to start at this, oh, hey, we all want to interface with each other. Okay, cool. How's that going to work? Oh, okay. It works by managing security, cost, scalability, and technology all in a way that most people don't understand. Okay, cool. Now let's come back up to it. Can we talk to each other? Yes. It requires all of this mess down here to be solved. Work in progress. Sheldon, this has been an absolute mindfuck. Let's talk about Octopus 2.0. Yes. So we established a lot of nuance and a lot of detail about interchain security. I personally, if I'm honest, as far as I could understand it, I like it. Some of the arguments in that post make sense to me. They are expanding revenue streams. The restaking model makes sense. Actually, I remember James Dow Dow mentioning the restaking without using those words and vividly in my memory, and it was two weeks ago, I got up from where I was and I walked to the back of the room where Claudio from Metapool was sitting and I told him, dude, that shit makes sense. That makes so much sense. Can we look into this? He wasn't paying attention to the talk and I've just messaged him this morning so we can look into it again. But yeah, if you could please give us an overview of Octopus 2.0 as you understand it. And I'll make sure that I link to that community call on the show notes. Thank you for that. Yeah, we spent a lot of time deciding the restructure before announcing it. And we have some work to finish. Some work has been started. But ultimately, how ReNear was eventually decided to do is to not put pressure on the near economy. And I did participate in some of these design decisions. So I'm proud to say that I'm not just the child and Lewis is my boss. Very much appreciate that. Lewis takes my advisement seriously. The original posture that we were looking at is, okay, we need to maintain the existing offering for substrate chains. We need to develop an offering for Cosmos SDK chains. We need to do that without just diluting NIR because NIR has a 200 person validator set. When we started, it had a 60 person validator set. So to avoid competitive economics based on our offering, we would need to make sure that NIR is integrated in our new offering. So when you say diluting NIR, can, can you elaborate more how that would look like? Yeah, sure. Like if you come to Octopus and all you're doing is spending NIR to get our services and there's no two-way interaction, that is really low velocity money. That's a shitty way to, to experience least security because if you're leasing security from us and that's a capital trade-off for you, if there aren't other fractals of capital trade-offs, if there aren't other sort of benefits from that capital exchange, then you just bought a service from us. Congratulations, we sold it to you. That's not how Web2 businesses want to work right now. They know how much of a failure that is to literally pay someone to buy their product once or, hey, I buy one can of Coke. Whoop-do, that's not the real business model. Coke wants me to wear their shirt and always be drinking their products and blah, 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 have their app or whatever. I don't know. The whole model of returning Clearly not business. a Coke drinker. Only when I have hard to digest foods do I need a really corrosive acid to help me eat. Yeah, but anyway, the way that I would explain it is that we were looking to make sure that we didn't act as a vampiric participant in near eco to say that we're only going to have people come here to buy near to spend with us and then they get something means that we're a dead end. We were not cool with that. So we knew that we had to integrate with near validator operations in some part of the offering while not harming the old offering because those substrate chains 
we made a commitment to them. They, they need to be able to keep operating. We are supporting them with validators of last resort and other infrastructure, et cetera. That budget has already been planned out for years. So in making the new offering make sense, we were looking at, okay, how do we make this productive for near eco and also make a reasonable offering for Cosmos chains? So there is some sort of contention that Cosmos SDK isn't the only way to run in Cosmos and lots of chains like running IBC in Cosmos without running Cosmos SDK. So slight disclaimer on that. But our decision was ultimately that in entangling those two offerings directly, we can say, okay, you're not just borrowing security from Octopus Network because as I explained in the sandwich, there is some, but we're just one part of that three pieces. Instead of us being a sort of uncertain part of that three pieces in the new offering, we're very directly saying, hey, you are not going to lease this service from us with the OCT token. You're going to use near directly, but you're using it through our contracts. Our contracts are going to be helping you do that. Those contracts will interface directly with validators. So in no way do we displace Metapool or any other actor who's doing restaking, but by using near as the asset that Cosmos chains have to put down in order to get services from us, we're making a reasonable need for near while increasing the value of OCT indirect value capture. When we first made the announcement, lots of people came forward in Discord and said, hey, I want my money back or I'm frustrated. Why isn't OCT the token that Cosmos chains have to put down in order to get the service from you guys? It's not necessary. The OCT token binding is based on the tech stack of substrate chains, the pallets. If we had a pallet on Cosmos to do that same thing, there wouldn't be a similar relationship with near protocol. Like, how do I explain this? Because these chains need to remain sovereign because they, like I, I fought when we were doing design and the discussion about this, fought back and forth to make sure that this was well understood because Cosmos has a, whether experimentalist or other nature, they are really focused on decentralization in their own cultural way, which is really just like stiff. And I like that. It's great to say that they're going to take on an on-chain relationship with us in order to get services. It has to be two way. So doing that through us administering contracts with the native token is a single layer of trust. If that was, oh yeah, you have to buy the OCT token and then stake it in contracts that OCT administers. That is a trust level that is not compatible with Cosmos ecosystem where it is compatible with substrate chains. Substrate chains already have this pre-existing culture and requirements and problem where the parachain has super high requirements for them. And that means that they get great services and lots of features and functionality. That's great. Our offering was based on shrinking that because we don't have that same sort of like institution shrink down to deal with on the Cosmos side. It didn't make sense to introduce another trust device, another instance where we could make a mistake potentially that would impact these other chains. So by having them only interact with Nier through our contracts, we know that not only are they just as sovereign and they could fork us and leave us when they want to, they're effectively more sovereign than the existing substrate chains because they're still contributing Nier back to the contracts that fund Octopus, that liquidity for OCT, that do a bunch of different callbacks that are super useful. But ultimately that means that the restaking of Nier, the promise of putting down Nier and then repeatedly putting it down maybe not new near, but just the same volume. That is a much more lease like relationship that is understandable for Cosmos type chains in dot you stake dot, right? If you're going to be a parachain, you're staking DOT to get benefits from the parachain that doesn't exist in Cosmos. Yeah. If you want to take up a relationship with the hub, then you manage an atom liquidity pool and you establish IBC with them through a proposal. Like 
it doesn't have the same capital requirements. It doesn't have the same trust requirements. It didn't have the same staking or tech stack requirements. So instead of pushing those four things that are like culturally different in, in Polkadot, instead of pushing that onto the Cosmos offering, we tailored it to them. Yes. It's a lot. I apologize. Perhaps to sum it up, and I've got the document here with some things that are highlighted that I think capture a lot of it. The first one is Octopus, smart contracts are near. There's a bunch of them. It enables parachains based on a substrate basis. For Octopus, for Octopus 2.0, you guys are building two new smart contracts on near. One of them is the restaking base one, which basically enables people to stake near as usually as they would have, generates layer one rewards. And then that near is also pledged or staked again towards the security of a Cosmos app chain. Just really quickly, this might be helpful. Tell me if it's not, because I know I over-engineering, over-complicate. When you stake near today, you're not setting a time epoch. You're saying, oh, hey, I'm putting down my near. I'm going to come back and collect some rewards for putting down my near later. If you're putting down your near in a restaking contract, you're specifically setting a time parameter. That's the difference in leasing. Awesome. No, thanks for clarifying that. That's actually not mentioned in the original community call, which I can understand why I would imagine that community call would have been half the duration of this podcast already. Lol. So I really like the idea of using staked near as collateral to provide security to app chains. And I believe that means that these near stakers are now essentially validators for the app chain. Is that correct? It's not required. It is recommended, but not required. Someone else can put down the capital on your behalf and then you run the account because they gave you a sub account, right? Like, I don't know if you're aware of that, but sub accounts in near operate the same as regular accounts. So it is feasible for your venture partner to pay for you. And then you become the operator separate from them. The main reason why I like it is we discussed before that there has to be a relationship between the value in your chain and how much value is securing it. And it simply makes sense to me that if NIR is an underlying network providing security, both to the Octopus smart contracts and by default, most things on top of Octopus, I think it's a neat way to close the loop to actually require or enable these other blockchains to keep locking NIR towards its security. That should potentially put some more demand on near, influence the price, take some out of circulation. It helped me to understand the concept and it made me very optimistic to look at what I believe is an inspiration for Octopus 2.0. I am not entirely sure how to pronounce it, but it looks and I think it sounds like eigenlayer. I believe that's the correct pronunciation, yes. Boom. Eigenlayer is very interesting. They are operating on Ethereum and they do seem to be offering something very similar, leasing security to other L2s. One thing that I really like from the Eigenlayer is that they are able to take Ethereum or any of the other liquid staking tokens, such as SDETH, RETH, etc. Is that something that the Octopus 2.0 contract is contemplating. Are you guys open to receiving SGNIR or any of the other liquid staking tokens in the near ecosystem? 
I don't think we've considered that yet, and I would be happy to consider it more, but I think there's two main reasons not to. Number one, the same sort of posture I was telling you about before, how we didn't want to double up trust on ourselves in applying the solution for the new Cosmos SDK chains. You could argue that this would do that if you had ST near. We would just be saying, hey, it's not us, it's our partner. So if something went wrong at Metapool, then, you know, we're not liable. That's weird trust devices if you think about it. But I think the real reason is that there's not enough diversity of restaking programs on near. If there was three that had consistent liquidity that were more popular, then I would say it's a much easier discussion to have to say, okay, whether we want to manage an index and use that as a tool to say, okay, we're going to allow a certain volume of O-Near or something versus these other tools. There's definitely room for this conversation in time, but because there's not enough restaking tokens for Near in the ecosystem, I think it won't be something that we consider in the short term. In the long term, we would be idiots not to tokens, include it. Restaking tokens, you mean liquid staking tokens? Yes, yes. Thank you. Yes. ST-Near, et cetera. Yeah, because the a concern that I have personally, and I've obviously been working very closely with the Metapool team, which is Stakeworks 3, etc. Near is so heavily concentrated. Like, it's not even funny. We've got a very small percentage right now on liquid staking, and the last 100 validators join the validator set. They've got a very small amount of Near. We actually continue to see more and more concentration to the top 10, which points to issues in the user selecting the validator. And this is something that Octopus 2.0 may want to take into account in the design. I know that in the current way, the user chooses their own validator. We can probably make some hypothesis here on how the users think. One would be whatever you place at the top, they'll pick lowest fee, probably also going to attract more. But there's a counter productive reasoning you can't really blame the user but at a network level it becomes an issue where people just look at validators that have a lot assume they're good and they keep going towards the same so i'm wondering how obviously increasing the share of liquid second providers would mitigate that the reason why i'd really like to explore that and we can take that offline get the teams talking to each other explore the index but well, the reason why I'm very excited exploring that opportunity is because I see this restaking mechanism as something that can potentially or most likely will attract a lot of near. And to me, the value proposition is very simple. You stake near here, you get the layer one rewards in near, and then you also get 70% of the app chain rewards. So it's, I don't know if it's a two for one mathematically, but it's definitely very attractive, especially. As we mentioned before, Cosmos ecosystem has a lot going for it, and it's likely to have more app chains. It actually gives you exposure in a really smooth way to an ecosystem that is technically not near, but I guess that it will be now. I can tell you what I personally advocated for, because to your point, we haven't stepped forward and said, hey, this is the way it is. We're saying still high level, right? This is what we're launching. My comments on this were that we should necessarily encourage people to make a fee-based decision or make a DPoS-based decision saying, okay, hey, this is probably a safe validator. They've got billions of dollars invested. I definitely agree with you on principle. That doesn't make sense. And there has to be better ways to go about that. My suggestion for better ways to go about that was requiring individual attestation from those validators on their hosting. So if you tell me that you're 27,002 and you have your own facility, 
And I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's a good start. What's your uptime like? Oh, we've only been running for a couple of years, et cetera, et cetera. That's very different from Joe's data center, which was only able to afford the minimal amount of near to stake and has been running a data center type business, co-location, cloud, whatever type business for a decade or more. So my vision on this is that operators should be rewarded based on the quality of their hosting, which is a super niche fucking thing. The market doesn't understand this or necessarily care, which is part of why we're still in debate about this thing, because you have to meet the market. I'm a purist. I always meet the market second. I try to be first principles. But from, a, from that first principles perspective, what I'm seeing and saying is that in order to manage a list of trusted partners for restaking, for the people who will get the benefit from this staking of near, that needs to be based on the way that they are treating their systems, not based on the volume of tokens that they're putting up. Because when you see someone with, let's say, a million near staked, you're making an assumption that because they have so much capital staked, they're likely to do a good job protecting that capital. Why don't we just subtract the probabilistic assumption from that statement and say, you want validators to do a fucking good job. You want to make sure that they're actually caring about uptime, that they have power redundancy, that they have network redundancy. In my mindset, I want high availability. I want redundancy all over the place. But even outside of that, their operation is the most key thing. If we have people delegate or stake, at a validator service and that validator service doesn't do them well, then that's bad on us. So instead of trying to make that sort of capital orient decision, my mindset is to make that oriented on their existing operations. And by the way, validators already have that motivation because they have other partners, funders, et cetera, that they're responsible for the same details to. But that's why I think that the only way to achieve that is to delegate the decision-making power to someone that specializes in that decision-making to me mm -hmm. the visibility central planning but that's central planning that's me taking that person's central planner as the manager of that risk i would much rather have individual parties attest and say hey this is how we manage that risk based on that individual attestation Oh, hey, here's a list. I'll get to that in a second. So the obviously the concentration is the easiest thing for anyone to see on the blockchain. The performance, it's a much more specialized skill set. But even then, like when you look at liquid staking, it takes into account several parameters. Concentration is one of them. Then I come on to coefficiency. Fees is one of them. Obviously, if we only support 10% validators, our APY is much lower. In fact, and I'll put it here on the record, Estineo and Manipal's APY is the lowest of the three providers because we support a lot of small validators with higher fees. I'm not going to say names. You can probably figure it out. There's only two others. But these liquid second providers delegate to the top three. Top three. So they're not all the same. And I guess that you really need to look at, is it a problem now? I'd say concentration right now is. But also, how does it play out over the next six months, 12 months, 18 months, infinity? You can go to the Aurora Governance Forum and see the shit fight that I unleashed when Aurora created their own validator. I said, look, it's not possible to have one team with a validator and the extra rewards and all the incentives that they put on. That validator can very potentially take over the network. And I can see an adversarial relationship between Aurora and Nier. Shit hits the fan, Aurora, it's like, hey, we've got you by the bolts. Who controls the network? We do. You know what the response was? 
talk to the Nira Foundation. It is not our job to guarantee the network security. That's their job. We're just running a validator. I think we can talk about that for a second, though, because that's a great topic to bring up. Like Aurora is the shard. Aurora is the highest throughput and highest volume of, of transactions. They don't just have a, a nobody shot at that conversation. They've got real weight to put on the table and say, hey, bitch, if we want to fork, then we fork. I think that's actually the kind of reason why Cosmos would be amenable to this kind of place, because having those kinds of like very bold and honest clashes in public respectfully and on principle, like that's what Cosmos culture is made of. In part of you, I'm happy for you for doing this. It makes a lot of sense. I wasn't aware because I don't spend time on Aurora governance, but apparently I need to go look like the framing that you're referring to. I got to tell you, I'm pretty sure we'll be listing some smaller validators for the exact reason that you're describing. I would be absolutely upset if all we did was just like list the top and say, oh, these are probably fine. I think Lewis is in, in, is in direct agreement with me. That's not productive, that capital security is part of the conversation and we may want to have one or two, max three of those larger entities, but it shouldn't be the whole list. That's part of why I think the index model is more productive, but it's also more work for us to manage and maintain that list ourselves and then be the ones who say, oh, hey, sorry, we didn't kick validator pickles out of the list when they told everybody to fuck off. It is difficult to be the person that backstops somebody else's counterparty. So instead of being the backstop and the counterparty, we want to try to be the transparent non-middleman that says, hey, if you want to stake your near and with these validators, then that's your decision. Here's the reasoning. I think that that lowest common denominator reasoning should be hosted. The second one is unfortunately frequently chosen by retail as fees and stake, but I'll be very happy to see when it's based on uptime, quality of service, redundancy, et cetera. Like I've always been telling validators, they need to get public about the way that they host their gear because that's half the freaking value. Akash culture is really good about this. Cosmos culture has been wonderful about this. Polkadot culture is not wonderful about this. Solana is the worst about this. And I totally understand why, you know, it's not so much cultural as it is hardware resources. I'll have my people contact your people. This conversation is far from over and anyone listening who wants to contribute to it, definitely get in touch. Look, the last thing that I'll say is, because we're talking muggle to wizard. In my world, the things that most engineers discount because it's so simple that it's an afterthought makes a huge difference. Product design, user interface design, the way that you display the list of validators, the way that you have contextual information informing about the concentration or whatever the case may be. If you want to go a layer higher, you could even have differential free pricing. Hey, if you want to donate to a top 10 validator, you pay a higher fee. And we use that fee to contribute to network security to the smaller guys. Or if you want to donate to a smaller validator, you get a bonus. There could be a set of incentives to try to balance things out. Honestly, I think that the easiest thing would be to work very closely with a liquid staking partner to make sure that all the security reassurances requirements are there or can be implemented. Because things have been quiet. Things have been peaceful. We haven't had our main stage yet. But when we do, and people start coming, popularity, shit hits a fan, volume, the concentration of near is one of the things that can definitely be held against us. Well, let me tell you, one of the first things that I think about, because I do think about UX on a regular basis, especially since being in near culture, I, I'm super happy to be around people who think about UX in a productive manner. I think that 
too many people are used to UX as React. Too many people are used to UX as what's right in front of you right now. How about the speed of delivery? If you go into a Chrome browser right now, I think any Chromium browser should still have this enabled. You hit F12, you'll get this developer thing on the side, right? If you choose sources, you can see a list of different websites effectively that the one website that you're on is pulling information from, right? So that means the hosting for that website is dependent directly on how fast you're going to see all those little components showing up in your browser. If you want to see what that looks like, go to the network tab and then refresh the page and you'll see these little bars loading that describe how long it's taking for that information to come in. The best validators that have the best hosting, their times are well under 200 milliseconds. They should be closer to 40 or 50. And that's proximity to the user, literally physically around the world, but that's also quality of hosting. If I'm hosting on my home ISP service versus on a, a blended BGP fiber service in a data center, those are wildly different response times. I think that latency over a network is one of the biggest things that we sleep on in user experience because you can make the most beautiful lean react ever and it looks great. But if it takes time to bring in the other pieces of information that you need to make that user experience worthwhile, then it's very difficult. So I do definitely think about UX, but I appreciate your comment because average engineering does not prioritize this. I respect that. That is the very subtle, but very important difference between UI and UX, right? The user interface, it's a pretty stuff on the page. And then that user experience, as you very well alluded to, it's like the broader A to Z, every step along the way, is it a good experience, broadly speaking. I've recently had the joy of clicking whatever left click inspect network and then refresh and see all these components appearing on a page. I'm not going to say who, and I've left FBI jurisdiction, <laughs> but someone at East Denver taught me how to bypass the borrow cache geolocation <laughs> limitation. So when I load the network thingy, there's two items that show IP, just block that shit and off you go. It's really annoying. You have to do it constantly. But to the regulators listening, sorry, Lizzie, I had to do it. I forgot about it. I was about to get liquidated. You got to do what you got to do. Respect. Yeah, I think that's a good example for sure of, of fun things that you can do to rip out browser code to make your life easier. There's too many shitty paywalls out there that are easier to rip through. So that's one of the easiest ways to do that is just find that element and make it get out of the way because most people aren't integrating that natively into their pages. We can take this out if needed. When I read your description, so I guess for context for listeners. Every guest receives a very simple link to try to find a suitable time. And the link has two very simple questions. Any material to help me prepare? And then topics that we want to make sure that we cover. Your description was probably one of the most fascinating and intriguing ones that I've read. Because it seems like you were alluding to some fundamental differences or misunderstandings that may have or may be taking place between you and some of your current employers. I read the material that you sent me, and as I was reading, my mind just kept going back to, I wonder where the discrepancies are. Like I was trying to identify 
where the contentious points were going to be or trying to see both sides of the coin. We're almost like, I don't know, nine hours in. This is the third recording. I don't even know how long it's been. But I think it's time to ask if you feel comfortable. What have been some of the contention points along the way? And especially if there are any misunderstandings that you'd like to clear up, this is the time. I appreciate the floor. Thank you. I'm happy to be honest about this because I have been in community. And when I realized that I had only been honest and forward about this in Discord and in Telegram, I said, okay, Twitter is not enough. That's not a significant public platform to be like, hi, I'm me. This is me saying this. So very transparently, I bucked the decision to, to cut DEIP because DEIP was effectively removed from our ecosystem because they claimed that they were going to take a malicious action or they claimed that they were in the process of taking a malicious action. I think that it makes sense that Lewis and Julian would decide to protect the network to prevent a sort of like mass event of people liquidating OCT or people liquidating the DEIP token. But it's unfortunate because we had policies in draft on how to handle these sorts of things. And because we hadn't ratified them, there was no sort of pre-existing understanding from the public of how things would look if a chain wanted to leave Octopus Network. So this is a great time to talk about this because it is wrapped into our new offering. You'll notice that Lewis mentions DEIP in the Medium talk, so that this isn't like a Gossip Girl shit, right? Have been publicly honest, and now more directly, that I disagreed with the I mean, of removing DEIP as the sort of like dead limb or malicious actor. I think that by them taking off-chain actions that are not directly relevant to on-chain behaviors, it was a really difficult decision to make. And Lewis made that decision to the, his best degree because he believes that was the right thing to do. I think that because we didn't set expectations beforehand, that it, it wasn't appropriate to nix a chain, to remove a chain from the ecosystem, even though it was ultimately the right thing to do to prevent the rest of them from having a, an economic event. So... That's one of the main things, and you'll see that in the design for Octopus 2.0, we included this logic, and I really fought internally about this, not that Lewis was clashing with me, but that I was pushing back against some design decisions, and we were trying to make this work, and we did. And that's part of why the restaking model works the way it does. So put it this way, if you want to leave Octopus Network and you're a Cosmos chain working with us on 2.0, that just means that you have one epoch of restaking or a planned number of epochs of restaking. And then your exit instead of this, oh, hey, we're just going to cut our economic arm off and run away because we want to do our own thing, which is what DEIP did. I think that it makes a lot more sense instead of looking for another chain to show up, join with Octopus Network in the future, potentially decide they want to leave, have a disagreement with us, and then some weird shit happens. Instead of going down that path and being all messy and me trying to make policy stuff public and all of this, instead of doing all of that, just set up a simple on-chain relationship so that people can know, oh, hey, the uh, Pickles and Dicks chain is now going to leave the network because they've decided that they don't want to participate with us anymore. Here is a timeline. We know exactly when this is going to happen. Their staking periods get end at this time. Here's a public notice to everybody in that ecosystem or in that chain. If you have assets on near, they're going to be orphaned. You need to take them out and move them to the native chain if you want them there. If not, you need to sell them before that liquidity pool can't do the job. Ultimately, we solved this in 2.0, which is part of why I'm so happy to talk about it, because in 1.0, we didn't have a method that chains would leave. Yes, chains effectively can graduate by making a series of upgrades to their pallets, their modules. That's perfectly fine. That's still feasible today. But the force leave, the sort of cut off the arm, the sort of like instant or unexpected event, 
like you said, Octopus came with lots of assumptions. So instead of making further assumptions about this sort of relationship in the future, we're just being honest to say, okay, we know that DEIP happened. We can't let that repeat. In order to not let that repeat, set up epochs of time through staking. We could have a really quick series of events of what actually happened with DEIP. Look, I could tell you, I saw the red flags from the early days because some representative from DEIP contacted me over Twitter. They asked me to make a YouTube video for them. They offered to pay. And afterwards, they ghosted me. Lucky for me, I never made the video. To be perfectly honest, I went to the website. I did my research. I never got it. And I was like, I cannot possibly go in front of a camera and explain something that I don't understand. <laughs> a really quick cap of DEIP. They were meant to be an app chain. They had an IDO. Yeah, actually, let's rewind the clock way further back because we, okay, I was aware of DEIP before I sent the first outreach email to them in fall of 2021. We sent emails to lots of different projects that were eligible to sign up with us, seeing if they were interested. DEIP is one that I did background on because I did at one point in those emails do a, a lot of deep diving, especially early in that process. Everything was bespoke. So when I looked at what they were offering, I was like, okay, you guys have pivoted your value proposition a few times. looks like your initial funding comes from 2012. You've got a lot of these shell corporations floating around. What's going on here? Well, I'm not really sure, but it seems like you might have a product and lots of people in cryptocurrency look fishy. And you and I both know as people who deal with compliance in this industry, you have to be reasonable, but also don't be too easy to be thoughtful, but don't be too easy. So pragmatic is the word that I usually settle on. That's a good one. So yes, in my pragmatism evaluating them, I was like, okay, maybe this isn't a party we should trust. I'm not a hundred percent sure. Either way, they have a tech stack that's available for what we're doing. We can have a technical partnership. Therefore, I'm going to take a look and send them out a message. And that message that I sent out was like, hey, I'm not completely understanding of your offering. And there's some details that need to be worked out. And especially if you're going to launch with Octopus, you have to be clear about your value proposition and you'll be communicating that to our community and other communities. In these pre-conversations, there was a lot of discussion about how NFT bridging would work. And we discussed that we were working on NFT bridging and we believed that it would be ready to go by the time that they were launching with us. So NFT bridging is still not available in Octopus Network ecosystem. It's on testnet but it's not functional. It's not in prod. That's part of the reasoning why they started giving us a hard time earlier in the year and saying, Hey, you told us that within X period of time, this would be done. We said, yeah, there's been changes to near and there's been changes to substrate chains and we have to make this work and sorry, we're doing what we can, but it's not ready yet. They did launch with us when they wanted to, because they wanted to make sure that they launched during a bull market. And they saw that some of that bull runway was fading away. Right. So because they launched in the bull period and they were dependent on part of our offering that wasn't ready yet, they started ratcheting up pressure against us internally about, oh, hey, you have to get this issued. We don't care if it's not secured or not audited. You have to get this upgrade out to us. You promised us this, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, we did, but it, it has to come under the right conditions. And you're the one who wanted to go ahead and launch without it. So you made that decision. You're responsible for that. We apologize. We're definitely responsible for this being late, but there isn't a capital 
sorry that we can give you or something, right? There isn't money that can make this better or whatever. This is just effort and time and we're already working on it. So what do you want? So that turned into a stalemate over the course of a few months where they would continuously say, hey, is NFT bridging yet? And we would say, no, you can see the repos. It's not ready yet. You can see it on testnet. It's not ready yet. We would not encourage you to implement it. And if you do implement it without cooperating with us, then we're not responsible for putting it into the UI. That led to a pretty obvious move that Alex and the others were going to make in order to change the stakes because they did trust us to get NFT bridging working with a larger L1 and we effectively didn't deliver that. So fast forward to, I guess it was August. I can't remember what, no, actually it was October 7th. It was the day before one year anniversary in prod. And they publish a note and start making comments how they're not going to be working on this chain anymore. And they're abandoning the old creator economy value proposition. And all the while, if you look at the development that they were doing in production between that initial time of though and fucking off from Octopus Network, if you look in that gap, you'll see that they only deployed one real product that was a sort of middleware. It was a proxy as code kind of service. And Really everything else that they deployed on that chain was built by them, even though they were saying that they were a creator tool a platform. So there was already this concentration of double trust inside that chain where products, applications, services, assets, whatever you want to call it, their fractional NFT model, it was all just coagulated to them as a group. So I'm not attacking them. This is all just, this is all transparent information that can be verified off this call, but that, that was already a bearish indicator. And some people who were very interested in decentralization and understood the caveat they were taking on with Octopus, but couldn't understand the caveat they were taking on with DEIP, they didn't like this. So DEIP was already experiencing some pretty like reasonable cultural sell pressure to combine that with, oh, hey, we're depending on Octopus to do the NFT thing. And also our value proposition is based on some stuff that's barely understood and work that hasn't necessarily been done yet or work that is done and doesn't have effective utility, et cetera. Like that led to a really obvious footing that if they, if they wanted to maintain their capital that they had supposedly put into this product, then they needed to effectively remove it from us. They needed to find a way to liquidate more DEIP than we would support moving over the bridge. They needed to find a way to be able to turn their value into dollars away from OCT, away from us, or at least USDT or whatever the heck else. So. It was a really unfortunate thing. And I do acknowledge that there is some cause on the Octopus side that we did talk to them about NFT bridging. Ternoa is another product that we spoke to who decided not to go with us because we didn't have NFT bridging in prod. Like totally understand, but DEIP did decide to go ahead knowing the caveats. And I'm not saying we're perfect because we're certainly not, but they took a really, I would say, abusive stance towards their community, not just after the disconnect. But in explaining the disconnect, they were saying, hey, we weren't able to make this creator economy product the way we wanted to. So instead of doing that, we're going to get into this 150 or so competition space where a chain of chains is our new business model, where you're going to come to DEIP and the DEIP will help you interact with all these other blockchains. This is still the narrative that they're pushing. And by the way, this is like a super easy rug component that you and I recognize from ICO period, I'm sure. If someone is telling you, oh, hey, we had trouble launching our dice game, but now we want to launch a 4K 3D first person shooter. I'm going to be like, bitch, you couldn't make a dice game. Why would I trust you? So 
in the midst of all this and in, in the time that they were disconnecting from us, like there was some really obvious stuff that was like, okay, yeah, Octopus clearly isn't perfect, but DEIP is being fucking weird. What the, how, what? Like why? When you look at all of these narratives, it's very obvious that they were looking at code they could borrow from other individuals. They were looking at what can we do without making too much of our own work. And that is assuming that their sort of new offering is genuine. I do make that assumption in the hopes that DEIP is not a 100% scam because we did inadvertently invest some trust in them and market them a little bit. And we, there's still a, a, a PR out there, not a pull request, but a press release out there that Octopus spent on, on DEIP so that the world would know about DEIP launching. And it's really frustrating and unfortunate that the, the end result right now is a dead discord where a moderator is being paid to silence individuals. And if you go look at that stuff, our former editor, Zan, she made some, some harsh statements about DEIP. Some of them are deleted. There, there was some info published about that as well. There's tweets from me that I have not deleted because I tend to not delete my tweets that say, Hey, please be transparent about this. You said you were going to provide a transparency report because this shit's weird. Where's your transparency report? Oh, don't worry about it. You're not, we're not part of Octopus anymore. We're not liable to you. I'm like, what about your community? Your community comes from us. You didn't have a series of capital flush token holders before we recommended that your product was something interesting. What are you doing? Are you hurting people or are you making a genuine product? I'm still frustrated with it. I'm not in the sense that Octopus 2.0 has definitely learned from this, and this is not something that will occur in the new framing, but it is still something that I question for Octopus 1.0 because the old substrate offering isn't going away. And if any of the existing five chains today say, hey, fuck you, we don't like Octopus anymore, there's not really anything we can do about it. And it's possible that a similar scenario would resume. That's the last ire where I still take issue on it. But at the same time, it is a very different standpoint than, oh, just, hey, we don't want to be at Octopus versus, hey, we're a malicious actor and we're going to see ourselves out with as much cash as we can. It is really unfortunate that it happened, but I don't come to this kind of thing from a product or from a human perspective. I come to this from a systems perspective. If you are permission to be able to do something, that's a feature. That's not a bug. So you have to be restricted from things that are not possible in the sort of like Web3 world and the public code world and the world of public blockchains. If something is possible, you can't just write it off as, oh, hey, probably not. But there's two separate things here. And I wonder how much they informed each other. One is a DEIP debacle. And the other one is Octopus 2.0. As I mentioned before, from the text of the community call, it seems like Octopus 2.0 was a product and business decision that would have probably happened anyway, independent of DEIP. I am like master tinfoil hat. Sometimes I look at some things and I wonder whether they've been designed a deliberate way so that it fails or to put off people from doing a thing that they're technically meant to do. Because as I was reading the changes to, I guess, what is now Octopus One, to the process for adding new app chains, I'm not entirely sure if shifting the decision-making to the DAO is going to be a better outcome than having a group of people, say, as yourself. With I can explain the reasoning for it, at least. I hear you on principle. Let me just, this is fast, not my usual ramble. The disincentive is greater if the DAO members are large OCT holders to enroll a potentially malicious actor. 
retail that was just like, oh, hey, we want to see more price action on OCT. They didn't really evaluate DEIP. They didn't go through a deep scrutiny of that partner and say, oh, hey, maybe we do or don't want them on the network. But if they did, they just voted yes. what are the chances that they would have not allowed them in? Because I suspect as somebody who looked at the product, it made no fucking sense. I still bought the IDO. Hey, they marketed a lot. I understand. Proxy validation. I want to see the Octopus ecosystem succeed. I support basically anything you throw my way. But, and this is something that came Which up today. Reason. I was just listening to a podcast of Shane with Laura Shane, and she had Meltem Demiroris and Caroline Long, I think. They were saying that if you applied the standards that apply to the big banks, to the regional banks, the standards that were technically dropped for the regional banks after the deregulation in 2018, the banks that just failed would have passed. So even though it was deregulated, it would have made no difference at all. That's why I keep thinking about we can make some procedural changes, but it's still worth asking, would the outcome be any different? Because my experience has been engagement in DAOs is usually low. But also asymmetry of information is massive, especially if you look at engineering or like business. Your points are valid on this. And I have lots of rule of threes about DAOs and different things to bring in. But I would say that this conversation doesn't even reach that point of DAO logic or retail logic in general. From a protocol standpoint, from a number standpoint, the disincentive for high OCT holders to have a negative actor join the ecosystem it's significantly higher. If I buy one OCT, I can go vote one yes. But that was but the old way. define negative actor. Anybody who is not meeting trust metrics or who is not appreciated, right, for their wacky product or for their concept. As an ignorant OCT holder, honestly, I don't give a shit. Whether a chain succeeds or fails, as long as they're paying their security or whatever the system is for OCT to gather value, I don't care. And to be honest, that is a layer one thesis. You want to have the highest level of abstraction where the value accrues. You don't care which decks, you don't care which NFT collection, you don't care about who wins technically. As long as the value accrues to the that higher level, you're fine. And even if you know that a project may die in X amount of time, as long as they pay for their security until they're dead, OCT holders may see the value. DEIP didn't. No. Didn't pay. Well, other people paid on their behalf, right? Other people locked up OCT to validate their chain and then they left. They said that they were going to stop doing anything. They didn't gracefully shut down a relationship with us. I did invite that in the weeks before the thing that happened. I did send multiple private messages like, hey, do you want to talk about this? I didn't get response from Alex or any of them until afterwards. It was the week after the incident where I had a meeting over a pool table with him about, hey, do you want to conduct an exit interview? I would like to get your feedback because there's a lot of bullshit flying around. And whether you're a scam or not, I still want your genuine feedback on your experience here. That is something that I don't talk about because it's weird to walk up to somebody who just stole from you and said, hey, would you like to have a nice little dinner conversation? It was still necessary in my opinion, but I see your perspective that it effectively doesn't matter, but also it's our responsibility to manage trust. And that means that there has to be some reasonable disincentives for people joining and leaving the network. 
if they're going to leave it statelessly, if they're going to leave it without graceful shutdown, if they're going to leave it without OCT migrating back to near mainnet, because there are some contracts that are orphaned because of this, because of this incident. And that's actually net good for the OCT supply because it does shrink it and make it slightly more scarce. But that's not in any way that the, a positive to us. We see that as a giant negative. That sucks that, that people were trying to participate in a reasonable relationship and then got the stick, got shafted. I listened to your podcast with a ready layer one friends. I timestamp things these days by where I was. So I was in Melbourne. I don't know, would have been, it feels like ages ago. We can agree to disagree. Listening to that podcast, I was a little bit skeptic on some things, some of them being octopus approach to decentralization. I think it's too fast, too soon, without much controls. Yeah, all the tokens are in the market. It's fun. So it's interesting to see that there is a leadership and there are concerted efforts to increase the chances of success. I don't think that centralization, quote unquote, is bad if it's a group of people that give a shit and get shit done. That's fine. So interesting to see the pivots. I'm sure that there are many lessons there. Look, overall, I'm really grateful for your openness and willingness to talk about this because in the same way that we had a rush of NFT projects on Nier. And that early day, the community bought everything that was minted to support the ecosystem. And most of them got fucked. We're gonna get, or we may be already in a place where we have the same at the app layer. We support everything and anyone that launches. And this is not just Nier, by the way, this is literally any Web3 ecosystem. Tezos, Solana, yeah, anybody who's like tribally in the bubble, yes, this is part of why I don't spend too much time in there, only some. And look, it's not a bad thing. Being an early adopter, providing feedback, all these things are fine. But the narrative that I'm trying to weave or what I'm trying to raise awareness of is not all of these products are going to succeed. Just because you're Web3, doesn't mean that you can have lower standards or that you don't do the user research or that you don't do iterations. There are projects that you can see, okay, it's a baby. It's a newborn. It will grow and evolve from here, but it's like in a good family. It's going to be educated. And there are some projects that you're like, what the fuck is this monster? There is just no viable future for this. And whether it is in your ecosystem or you want to support the team, we just got to find ways to provide feedback, but real feedback, like constructive criticism. Don't forget about the criticism bit. I try my best and I sometimes it's a bit hit and miss, but it is inevitable. Like when you look at startups, most fail. There shouldn't be that blind loyalism. If we really want to succeed as an ecosystem, we just got to keep pushing for higher and higher standards. That was my run. Yeah. Well, actually, I think this is a perfect sort of not closing conversation. Honestly, my butt's hurting from this stupid chair, but there, there's something in Cosmos that I really want to talk to you about. And I think this can be a good point for us to close down on because it does take in so many other things that we're talking about, but it does really focus on human trust is still a core component of what we do. Yeah. Yeah. On-chain trust is a thing. And I'm very focused on that and modularity and config and blah, blah, blah. But 
there's something I want to draw your attention to in Cosmos that is not great, but important for growth because part of how Cosmos grows is not comfortable experiences. It's people butting heads to, to reach a resolution. I think that's actually one of the reasons why Cosmos is so wildly successful, not just because so many people ship, but that's part of debate. Canto shipping versus near shipping versus uh, what is it? Archway shipping. Like these different products collide in certain ways, namely the 30% that you get from posting a contract and getting rewards from. So aside from that, because we've touched on that and that's a common enough conversation, I want to get into something a little bit niche called the Aqua token. I'm guessing you've never heard of this. A-C-Q-U-A. A-Q-U-A. Okay. Fancy. Yeah. No, I've never heard of it. So Aqua token is a token that came out of a, another ecosystem product, a, a product that's effectively not liable for them, but Aqua is just a entity that is supposed to be a legally registered charity that does some good stuff that did some on-chain and off-chain raising under that banner of Aqua, right? If you search dollar sign Aqua on Twitter right now, you're going to see a bunch of comments from me. You'll see a bunch of comments from this guy, Ray. You'll see a bunch of comments from a bunch of other people that are like, hey, where's the fucking receipts? Because this is an entity that was raising money, not based on an on-chain business, not based on an application. They were raising funds based on drilling wells for people in, I think it was Zambia, maybe Zimbabwe. I forget. I'm pretty sure it was an African country. So they're doing raises based on a public good where we know that they may take more of that funding than is actually necessary to do the work. Therefore, it is not a nonprofit. It is a social benefit corporation. To some degree, we know that the people running the program always were going to be enriching themselves in some capacity and doing public good for it. So that means, sure, if they can raise and people are fine with that, then that's fine. Unfortunately, Aqua is run by this asshat Todd, and Todd has been using other people's registrations as proxy. For example, his brother is the one who legally registered a entity in California that's now lost its license as a nonprofit. This is the kind of uh, misunderstanding that was utilized because the narrative, the product, the human trust was all put forward as, hey, we are good. We care about this. We have these skills. We had this gear. We just don't have the resources to transport the drill to the site and then do the work. We need your funding so we can get gas and so that we can let other people know about this and redrill some other wells. It turns out we're not sure that they've drilled any wells at all. They initially said they had drilled nine. I could only record three, but I didn't scrutinize those three. Ray has been doing great work on this. Ray Authors Code and Cosmos, Ray Raspberry. And this entity aqua was effectively using human trust as a proxy and as a tool to take in funding that funding has all been split up to centralized exchanges in different countries that funding has all been moved away from the aqua token into other tokens and then back out into other payment gateways like centralized exchanges and the idea that i mean to convey here is not that this is a malicious actor and it's so obvious. No, they came initially and made a good pitch and used human trust and did everything that looked above board, including registering a charity. And they used all of these things as a proxy to manage what they actually wanted, which is to consume the funds and do whatever they wanted with them, which included a lot of gambling on Terra. So before the Terra collapse, there was a lot of DeFi degen bullshit that's Still on the Explorer, you can track down about this. So that'll give you some color of like how shitty this is. I found two of the latest tweets, March 13. Aqua token is a disgrace to the, to the cosmos. 
and should be ostracized on principle, on-chain and off-chain records align against Todd's bullshitting. That's you, a quote, tweeting Ray. And then there's a, I guess it's a further conversation. Can you demonstrate any segmentation, your operation expenses? Good on you. I really- We did give them the benefit of the doubt initially. We've been like harsher and harsher on them over time as they have not been amenable to reasonable ethic requests. Hey, can you be honest about this money that you said that you liquidated for some benefit? Really like and applaud that culture of being able to speak out and challenge and hopefully come to a, yeah, even if you just agree to disagree. I do have to say the near ecosystem, I think, has too many cheerleaders, people that just want to see it succeed and they just applaud blindly and go along. Matt Lockyer recently created a group of people saying, hey guys, enough talking. Like we have to fucking build cool stuff. Like the people in this group right now, what are we actually doing? get people in here who can actually deliver and it's not even like products he's talking culture let's explore people like jake dow dow fucking cool guy visionary leader he's not driven by money it's not about having a grants program and see who bites it's initiatives like that i like there's one thing in human behavioral design that i almost feel like i have a duty to tell to people in the West because they seem to not get it or I guess I've never been exposed. But dude, as someone who grew up in Venezuela and the minimum wage is like 50 bucks or something, you have to understand that when you enter a global interconnected economy, the incentives become disincentives and the positives become corrupted and warped so fast. Dude, Ask anyone in Venezuela that puts up a grant for whatever X amount of thousands of dollars, which is like a year worth of income, with zero fucking scrutiny on a forum with some clowns, they will tell you it is so easy to game, they deserve the money. Honestly. If the other people were so stupid to give it away, they didn't want it. So this is where we have to be mindful of, did you get scammed or did you basically get out of your way to invite scammers in did you get scammed or are you in the business of serving scammers and that's why i am anal on the forum and on the DAOs and everywhere and i'm quite impressed i've been able to hold the line because dude some of the structures and the incentives that we put in place are completely upside down yes i don't blame people in some countries for taking advantage of it because Honestly, it was too good to be true. It was the opportunity of a lifetime for them. And the fact that we're not seeing progress or whatever second and third order effects that is for us to fix in our systems, it starts with that awareness of being critical and having common sense and not being so gullible as to think that everyone has the best intentions. Because when they give you the tens of thousands of dollars, everyone fucks off. Harmony should have its own cemetery. And we should have a minute of silence for the Harmony ecosystem because the insane things that were happening there. And to be fair, shout out to the few people that were calling it out and trying to savage it. There were a handful. That's what we have to guard against. 
agree. The era of critical thinking in crypto is now. Every time someone comes to me and says, oh, hey, Sheldon, you've been in the space for years. What do you do? How can I suss out if a product is legitimate or not? How do I know if I'm being taken for a riot, et cetera? I think the comment I have, the posture I have, it's still useful. This is from ICO period. What does it do? What does the asset do? Oh, you mean the asset is a method of moving capital between somebody. Okay. Then you're comfortable with the human trust of it. And if that's what you're getting into, whether that's somebody from Zambia who says they're going to drill wells or someone who's claiming to launch a blockchain product that doesn't actually exist, or someone who's using marketing as a, a method to generate value without any actual value proposition. If you're asking, what does it do to any asset that you're going to touch with your money? The odds of you getting fucked are pretty low. If you go beyond that and say, okay, who is the controller of what it does? Then you have an entire scope of human trust to manage, regulatory registrations, reputation on chain, reputation on Twitter, friends and family, whatever you want to call it, vouches. I think that we are moving into that much more productively because not just Ethereum abstraction is changing or because Near has these benefits that interest. But the, the future of crypto is not the NFTs of the past. It is not the, oh, hey, I'm going to launch a chain because fuck it. And then turns out it, it emits tokens. So I'm going to try to get people to buy them. I think that we are mostly done with that era of this. And I'm very happy to have been here from early days. But Jesus, I have some gray hairs because like this extra effort and evaluation that comes through this, people still want easy button to not have to critical thing, to not have to scrutinize and be careful. But. Hey, if you were doing that with stocks anyway, you're just going to do that in a new method here. It'll be the same thing in crypto. If you were not being responsible with your financial decisions in the past or with your OPSEC in the past, then that doesn't change when you come to crypto. I'd highly recommend to anybody who does that to change, but also it's very hard to look in the mirror and see that until you get hurt. It's frustrating to me, but I think the fact that we're still permeating like less than 10% of global populace with crypto means that there's still going to be at least another 5% of humans worldwide that have to really get hurt before the stuff becomes culturally normal. Thankfully, enough people have gotten hurt up to the point now where critical thinking is part of the conversation. People are asking like, hey, how is this going to fuck me? What does this mean? I'm grateful for that. That was a beautiful wrap-up rant. I want to clip the whole thing except the getting fucked by the chair, I hope. Sheldon... You are a legend. We will definitely need to have you back to talk about Ample. I only discovered it today and I have to say I like what I see. So definitely you or someone from the Ample team are welcome back anytime. We've covered a shit ton of things. You take the record for the longest podcast and I think it's been a good one. Thanks so much. I appreciate you letting me ramble through the longest podcast, but I commit to you that next time I'll be more concise. It's something I've been working on. Never, never. <laughs> right. Cheers, brother. That's a wrap. See ya. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained in this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice, and you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. 
stay safe out there and i'll see you soon bye